Welcome to the ooh, egalitarian eighth episode of uh, Got the Run. The ebullient eighth episode. <laughs> the, I don't know. Uh, I was going to say something with boolean, the computer programming term, but then I realized that doesn't start with an E. Uh, we could have just gone with excellent. <laughs> nah. Big nah there. Uh, but welcome to Got the Run's. It's the podcast. Okay. Let's let's like really try and get one this time. Okay. Let's really try and figure it out. Um because we're recording these out of order. I think in the Gumby episode or the uh what the secret episode that's coming next week. <laughs> We've already talked about the Gumby episode like five times. <laughs> in the secret episode that's coming next week, we I think we also discussed this. Um but let's like really try and hammer out the log line to the podcast. Uh-huh. This is a good way to start it. Yeah, this is what the people love, the content they crave. Okay, so obviously the thing that sort of, I think, I think our selling point is that we're sort of covering specific creators in a way that is different from most comics discourse. Yes. So... <laughs> we're not like other shows? <laughs> yep that's it (laughs) so welcome to got the runs we're not like other shows which is true (laughs) it's also a little bit uh, crazier yeah we can be a little random sometimes (laughs) i don't know if you heard about this i mean secret episode that's coming out Uh... but this week this is a, actually a special week because this is, uh, maybe we should have been prepared to uh, discuss and rank things here. Oh, but... I am prepared. Oh, okay. Uh, well, well, I guess to, to uh, yeah, I'm prepared-ish considering that we haven't yet, or you haven't yes. yet read one of the titles, but. Yes, yeah, so we'll just, we'll just, uh, what's the, show how the sausage inside the curtain is made? A peek, a yeah. peek inside a the peek sausage. In... <laughs> <laughs> a peek behind the sausage curtain. Um. Oh, sausage <laughs> curtain. <laughs> but yes, we are recording these out of order. Uh, so I have not read one of them, but I'm more or less ready to rank, and I can I can probably assume where I'd slot <laughs> in. Uh, but yes, this is the conclusion of our mini series, our first ever mini series about the works of Scott McCloud, and we are talking about his most recent uh, piece of output. Other, like, do you see like web comics or like I don't other think he's still doing more web comics. He's working. He's currently working on another nonfiction comic about like graphic discourse or something like that. Yes, I saw this. Like he's talking. It's like about like infographics and stuff, right? Yeah, basically, like, I think it's about like, like graphic communication. Yeah, like that kind of thing. Like, like he has yeah. been notably addicted to <laughs> infographics and like, um, yeah, like pictograms for many years now. So. Yeah, we uh, we mentioned his Google Chrome thing, which I'm just going to preemptively say that we talked about last week in our <laughs> Making Comics episode. I don't think we did. Um, sure I we think did. we would have talked about it during our Reinventing Comics episode. No, because it, I think it comes out in like 2008 or something, so yeah. I think we're okay. Okay. Uh, anyways, so yes, today we are talking about The Sculptor, which is from 2015, and Scott describes it as his first full-length graphic novel. 
so yeah, but so let's 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 just dive right in. I want to. I'm excited to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Um, this, so this is basically the first conventional. It's fair to say the first conventional narrative comic that Scott has made in at least like 25 years, years but longer. realistically like since, since Zod really yeah because he didn't draw Superman adventures and then as <laughs> so I'll read the quote here but uh so here's what Scott said in an interview with Entertainment Weekly weirdly uh he says in the comics industry we have a tacit agreement that we've all sort of Basically, we agreed that one technical graphic novel that I did called The New Adventures of Abraham Lincoln never existed. <laughs> Laugh. <laughs> I genuinely forgot <laughs> about The New Adventures of Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Let me finish the quote. So this is basically my first graphic novel. I've always, I always felt like I had this big hole in my resume because I haven't done a really big, satisfying work of fiction. I would dispute that. Fiction is interesting. I love telling stories, and I did about a 20-year sidetrack where I was just explaining things in comics. A big part of comics is just the joy of telling and reading stories, and I wanted to jump back in the pool and see if I could finally create a story that would be really involving for readers. Yeah, I, I genuinely forgot that The New Adventures of Abraham Lincoln existed. We would have covered it if we could have found it anywhere, but it doesn't exist digitally, and the trade paperback is like good luck if anyone wants to read it. I, I did look at uh, it, it. So that's sort of like you, you read a quote from it, I think, recently on uh, that Scott talks about it on his website, where it's like there were the people who thought it was like a noble failure <laughs> and the people who thought it was a total failure. Yes, he's like, yeah, he's he says that he likes to call it a noble failure, but the like comics reading public at large thought failure was sufficient. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I did look at a couple of... He has page excerpts on his website. Did you look at those at all? Yeah, they're horrifying. Yeah, they look terrible. But also, like, I'm very intrigued to read it because it seems like basically what the plot is, is that, like, a false Abraham Lincoln who is, like, a paragon of the modern-day Republican Party and is, like, therefore highly different from the real Lincoln, like, appears and is, like becomes like the new champion of the republican party which sounds very funny yes uh i think i read you the summary that he has on his website at some point but yeah it sounds demented (laughs) yeah exactly so what so basically he he does kind of talk about it there but what do you think sort of was do you think there was any kind of impetus towards him returning to so I say typical comics. He does say he's been working. He works on this for five years. So mm-hmm. probably fair to say he starts it in sometime in the late 2000s. Yeah, I think he kind of got maybe a little tired of being like the understanding comics guy, considering that he started out like his dream was to make comics um, like narrative comics as a kid. Narrative comics were what got him excited about the medium. He started his like career off making narrative comics. He kind of like only got out of it because he was sort of like he started to get obsessed with some of the understanding comics ideas. Um, but the like the reason that he's excited about comics is as like a narrative storytelling format. Like that's that's always kind of been his number one love and so i think like i was i read a lot of the press around this as well which is like kind of it it speaks to the extent to which he was the understanding comics guy that he even like has like did like a book tour for this and like (laughs) gave all these interviews because that's not really like 
you know, people people aren't calling up most comics creators to be like, hey, I, I understand you have a new book coming out. Can we uh, sit down and talk about it? Yeah, it's almost like the Neil Gaiman thing where sort of he gets put in a different category. Like he's seen as more literary than yeah, the average yeah, comics creator. For sure. Um, and, and on a lot of the like kind of preambles before the interview starts, they talk about how like in, in many ways it's very brave for the understanding comics guy to like write a graphic novel now, knowing that like he literally wrote the book on comics. And it's like, well, yeah, but before that he wrote like, (laughs) you know, 40 or 50 issues of, of like other narrative comic book story. Like he started out as a narrative comic book storyteller. So I think that he kind of wanted to take a bit of a break from uh, like the the more critical stuff. I think he felt the sort of creative itch to tell a story again. And I, I think he this is like total, total, you know, armchair psychology for me. But I think he was getting a little tired of being put like put into the same box and wanted to remind people that um, he kind of made his name uh, as, as a storyteller first. Yeah, absolutely. Like I. Uh, like really like not to expose my thoughts on this but reading this and then like you know like having his basically his two notable fictional efforts being Zot and this I'm just like it's like it's amazing that understanding comics exists and I don't think anyone else like would or could have made understanding comics or reinventing or making comics but it is sad that we missed out on like 25 years of Scott McCloud comics. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Especially like, I think, you know, not to, not to disparage his work between the sculpture and, uh, and understanding much of which I'm sure is important. And he certainly is excited and passionate about, but when I think of like the amount of time that he's spent just focused on, uh, I mean, it's like somebody has to be focused on those things and like, le- you know, leading the charge for the digital revolution and being like the the great champion of web comics and stuff like that. But like, yeah, the fact the fact that like after understanding comics till now, the only like major works we have from him are reinventing comics, which we went in on a little bit <laughs> already, like n- not our cup of tea totally and making comics, which is like a very cool book and a cool resource. But still not like quite at the understanding comics level um you know i would i would never call his career like a waste or anything like that but no, it, it, it's just it's disappointing as such big fans of his fiction work that um he just hasn't done very much fiction work yeah exactly and it sounds like uh we are somewhat on the same page here i am interested to hear what uh you generally think of this um do we do we just want to give initial thoughts right now? Because like I think, like I don't think it's perfect. Like it, I mean, but I think it's like as good as the late stage Zod stuff. Like I think this is really really good. Yeah, it's like I, I definitely think it's like kind of a peaks and valleys book where the strong stuff is really strong, and there are so, like there are definitely some glaring things about it that I think are less than perfect and which i'm sure scott would also say are less than perfect because he's like always the first person to say his uh, anything he does is less than perfect but um yeah i thought the stuff that works really works the stuff that doesn't work uh at times like really didn't work for me uh and other times was was kind of easier to get by but i don't think there's any denying that 
the the um it's it feels very personal for him mm-hmm. and i think that's very impactful and then obviously like everyone knew it was going to be a technical like masterclass, which it is yeah the the art is very interesting and we can get into that um but yeah there it, there's something about this that it feels very cinematic to me like i would love to see a movie of this and like i think you could make a good movie of this well good news for you <laughs> wait are they really making a movie of this oh uh, it was optioned like as soon as it came out uh and i believe they announced a director the short-term 12 guy was attached oh that see that's a good call i like that is it not the uh, the guy who's directing uh, Shang-Chi? Yes, it is. David something, Daniel something. Destin Daniel Cretton. That's right. Well, Yes, I he, mean, he was attached at one if point. If you wanted your name to be remembered, you shouldn't have made it Destin, I will say. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was like a bidding war for the rights after it came out. Uh, and then in 2018, Destin Daniel Cretton was attached interesting i wonder i would imagine that might not still be the case yeah no movement since then he's now directing shang chi which is gonna you know that that'll take up the next couple of years yeah um so let's just uh i mean we're, we're just doing it right now let's let's fan cast this baby oh boy man i don't know i would see i was thinking about this a little bit with regards to meg who like obviously i don't know if this is how i want to dive right into it but it feels like exactly the kind of role that zoe deschanel was doing circa like yes well 500 days of summer which this movie yes. it's a bit of a 500 days of yes, summer. yes <laughs> this does have a bit of a fi- well, i mean like not, well 500 days of summer with a little less self-awareness i mean have, yeah. have we already talked on the podcast about my 500 days of summer thoughts no we have not about how basically my take on it is like the thing that people think that 500 days of summer is doing wrong is like actually what it's lampooning yeah but anyways we don't need to get into that but yes there definitely is a i mean i wouldn't i i think you could call it a manic pixie dream girl thing because she is literally manic first of all (laughs) yes she is manic uh i didn't read a single review that didn't use the term i don't think when i was like browsing her like she definitely gives the vibe off and people picked up on it some people felt like she um subverts it a little bit other people were just like not at all (laughs) i think Uh, so, so I and again, this is another thing where we can really dig into it later. But I do think it's something where he is aware of it and sort of deliberately trying to comment on it or lampshade it in some respects. But then at the same time, like the natural like structure of the story is sort of pulling him into that trope almost. Right uh yeah i've never been good at the fan casting stuff and i feel like i don't have many good ideas because they are like the characters are at an age at least david we know explicitly is 26 yeah which seems insane to me yeah because he does not read like a 26 year they old. all have like mid-30s vibes yeah big time um but anyways meg's age is unspecified but i think we can assume pretty clearly that she is roughly that same age yeah and i just don't feel like i know the like current cohort of actors who are who who play 26 yeah i guess um so i mean it's this is like the most obvious like throw it out ever but 
Are we are we sure that Timothy Chalamet isn't a, <laughs> wouldn't be a really good David Smith? Uh, yeah, it's funny because I feel like in Lady Bird he basically played like a parody of David Smith, sort of. Yes, like sort of like very. I don't know how to, how would you describe David Smith? Uh, self obsessed. Uh, slash generally obsessive, self serious. Um, earnest. Uh, yeah, <laughs> very, very much like the tortured artist to the core. Yeah, maybe Lucas Hedges would make sense because maybe. he is very much like, I find Lucas Hedges to be a very sort of like, un, e- like sort of an egoless performer. So he could play someone who sort of is self-obsessed in that way and like obviously an extremely flawed character in that way. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyways, <laughs> we, don't, we don't need to talk about it. But I, I would be very excited because I think you could do a great movie of this. Like maybe with some tweaks to this. Like at least like the bones are there for a very interesting movie. In my yeah, opinion. yeah. The the one problem I feel is that like they always say like comic books have an unlimited special effects budget. Um, and I feel that during like the street art phase, there's, there's a chance for some like really bad special effects. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's but, like the first thing I think of, but I feel like you can like, you can do so much stuff like in close up and like, it's like you, you can sort of show the process in a, and then just show the finished product in like right. a sort of wide shot. Like sort of, sort of do exactly what they do in the book where it, he like first kind of demonstrates the power like alone in his apartment with like a concrete block yeah um or a granite block or whatever and then after that yeah i yeah, i guess so yeah anyways we can uh <laughs> we can table that for now we can work on uh our casting for now but by uh, yes uh so let's jump in let's start with my favorite segment because that's the one that focuses on me <laughs> uh what's going on here um i don't really like this. Is this Scott's art on the cover? It is because Scott's it art on the cover. Like him. Uh, I'm not sure who's coloring it. Yeah, maybe the coloring is the problem. Like the sort of very like, again, like web comic-y is the word that comes to mind because of like that sort of specific digital. Yeah, like the gradient coloring. Yes. I think maybe that's what turns me off a little. Um, there's a lady coming out of a wall. She's giving a man a little smooch. <laughs> um, yeah, before, uh, like when this first came out, slash, I knew it wasn't true by the time I like sat down to read it. Not sure how exactly, but I just did know that this wasn't the case. But the title and the cover um, always convinced me that this was going to be like a Pygmalion riff for like three years after well, it yes. came out. Yeah, which obviously it's uh, it's more of a Faust riff. Um, than than Pygmalion. Yeah, and I mean like it what I what I find so interesting about this is that it's only a little bit about like the what what appear what would appear to be the central conceit, which is that he is given these powers that allow him to like basically like create anything that is within his mind. But basically like that his ability is or his like supernatural power is basically just like a stand-in for like he gets really talented yeah like creative force (laughs) like creative creative ability and not even creative ability because like i think 
so much of the book is about how like even though he has this ability yeah it right. doesn't necessarily like translate into everyone immediately right. like jumping on board it's, it's more like like uh and you know here's where we start to already <laughs> bump up against how much like scott mcleod is in this book but yes it's kind of it's more like he gets the power of like ultimate technical mastery exactly uh and the question is is ultimate technical mastery enough <laughs> if if your actual like art and ideas fail to move anybody yeah so i mean let's just uh we, this is jumping ahead a little bit let's talk about this so pretty early on not super early but like one of the first things that we see after david smith gets these powers is he sort of creates the like tons and tons and tons of sculptures that are like all some literal some more abstract that are all representative of like different memories from his life yeah are we meant to think that those are good no i think explicitly in the text by eventually even his own admission and certainly the feedback of everyone who sees it including his fans basically like the people who yes. think that he's good no it's like the, there are some good things there is what the message is supposed to be but uh as like a collective whole it's like there's more bad than good for sure yeah it's man the, <laughs> I, I do find it so interesting how much of scott is in this because it is riffing on like a lot of the same ideas that he sort of seems preoccupied with in the last few. Like, I think that David is sort of uh, representative of what Scott has talked about in terms of like the platonic artist or like the art for art's sake guy and sort of mm -hmm. like po poking some holes in that sort of idea, which I find really interesting. Um, and, you know, it's also just like, it's a comic about making art, which is just, yeah. you know, that's some Scott-ish. Yeah, I would go so far as to say that this comic is also ultimately about comics, even though, like, sculpture and fine art are kind of more... Like, it's certainly about art generally, but, like, right from the get-go, what like, when I saw Uncle Harry, uh, who is, like, the embodiment of death who grants David his powers... My first thought was like, oh, this guy is like Stan Lee. Like he looks like Stan Lee. He does look like Stan Lee. And it feels like like right like kind of like right at the bat, I don't know. It it feels like it introduces like comics as a concept into like the back of the head. And from there on out, like I can't I can't. Well, and help also it. like there is an actual comic in that scene, that first yes, scene. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he like reflexively there are certainly a few uh, explicit references to comics uh, that he like reflexively can't help himself from making. But like the joke about how David can't use his newfound powers to fight crime, I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> like well, like you're the one who gave him a superpower, Scott. You can't, <laughs> you can't lampshade it quite this smugly." <laughs> and there's another, that's another joke which I really liked in that first scene where it's like. Uncle Harry's like, oh, you know, you should have been a comic artist. Those guys make yeah. the big bucks. And, <laughs> and David's like, I'm not sure that's right. Uh, but maybe, yeah, I think I think this is one where we can sort of go a little linearly and then we can jump off onto the different uh, ideas that are present in this book. So we start with a, what do you call it? A dedication. Yes. Uh, which is for the girl in the hat, 
which is re- sort of you read the epilogue sort yeah. of thing, right? Yeah, which is sort of revealed in epilogue. Um, so I, I won't spoil it yet. And then, so I started on the cover and was like, "Whoa! Like, did Scott even draw this? Like, this looks weird. I don't know what to expect." And then you go to the first page and it's like, oh, this is Jenny. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Certainly, yeah. As far as like his um, his like faces and figures and all that, he has like evolved slash improved, I, I suppose. But it's definitely still like, you know, it's still Scott. I wouldn't say that. Um, and I, I, yeah, I wouldn't say that like figures and, and people generally are the strongest part of his art. And certainly the I think the most striking art in this book, none of it is of people. Yeah, it's it's identifiable. It's like serviceable. It's functional. But I, I don't think anyone is looking at his people as like the strong point of his art. Yeah, the more it gets into like, like, I think the, like all of the he does a lot of the sort of table setting kind of things where like usually he'll devote a whole page in multiple frames to that i forget exactly what he calls it in understanding comics but that's sort of like setting the mood setting the scene setting the tone yeah the aspect to aspect transitions exactly and i think that those work super super well um it is it's it's interesting because in some ways it's more detailed like i'm just looking at the first page here where it's sort of setting the diner scene and some of it like there's a drawing of a hamburger <laughs> that's very detailed. <laughs> but then also, like, other parts seem to be sort of deliberately sketchy. Um, and then the big thing that I think is, like, sort of distinctive here is it's in black and white, sort of. But then he's also working in blue. Yeah, there's, like, a blue wash. Or, like, a blue... It's almost like I, I was like, is this pen? Uh, I don't really know about the technical elements. But, yes, there is. there's an overwhelming... Like, a lot of the background characters and things like that are rendered in a sort of blue tone. It's like blue scale almost. Yeah. As opposed to gray scale. Right. But then in the foreground, like, when people are foregrounded, like, he almost uses it as a a focus. There's a scene that's uh, right after the sort of initial diner scene where he is walking down the street. And then there's, like, in a crowd. It's on page 43. Um, where he sort of he is rendered in the in like a very typical like black line, and then the people in the background in the crowd are rendered in that sort of blue, which I right, found very yeah. interesting and sort of like that. That's almost like he's using color as like the camera's focus in a way. Yeah, which I thought was really interesting. Um, but yeah, so we start with David Smith. He's the other David Smith, <laughs> famously, which is. A somewhat good bit. Um, I mean, I, I didn't know who David Smith was before. <laughs> I didn't reading either. This book, I didn't really so. bother to look up David Smith. Did I, you? The book, I briefly, but like the book tells you all you need to know. He's yeah, like he's a, a very famous, famous yeah, 20th century sculptor. Yes. And so David Smith is the other David Smith who is also a sculptor. He is um, sort of a very much a starving artist. We don't quite get into exactly the exact uh, details of sort of his past but it seems like you know even as a college student he was sort of an up-and-comer and was sort of getting feted and had a, a guy who was sort of a patron of his mm-hmm. and then that ended up falling through because David like publicly criticized him for some decision related to art basically like 
a lot of stuff about like sort of like the machinations of the art world and how fickle it can be mm-hmm. and sort of the the financial versus artistic constraints or forces that are pulling which is very much what he talks about in reinventing comics yeah go, <laughs> go ahead oh I, di- I didn't have much to uh, much to contribute to that but yes he he so <laughs> i don't know let's let's start at the beginning i feel like again he is a starving artist in that he is like literally out of money he's spending like his last few dollars on beer when he is approached by his uh he happens to run into his great uncle harry at the diner um where he is drinking subsequently realizes that uh after after some combination about how his childhood dreams of being an artist have not really panned out um he realizes that in fact his uncle harry has been dead for several years <laughs> and a, a this, classic thing yes, you forget this both is his uncle harry and death because uncle harry was death all, <laughs> yeah. all this along is, this is a sweaty premise but i'm also into it the the conceit being that death like the the grim reaper well, every few thousand years, like, <laughs> which like weird. human <laughs> humanity has not been around for that many several thousands of years. It's true. It's like it's so, very this is like vague. the third time you've done it. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Uncle Harry says that every few thousand years he will live a mortal life, which basically means he will like. So it's it's kind of messed up when you think about it. It's like someone will die and then will so. Okay, here's a question for you. This is a lore uh-huh. question. <laughs> so what we what we find out is Great Uncle Harry died in World War Two. Yes. Or some kind of war. I don't maybe it's not specified. But and then sort of death comes in and takes his place. Do we think that death is inhabiting Harry's body, or do we think that death like disappeared Harry and then like reappeared <laughs> just like standing there in like a reconstruction of Harry's body. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I don't think it's clear. I don't think that Scott it really cares. <laughs> um, I think he probably inhabits. No, actually, I don't think he inhabits Harry's body because he describes himself as unable to have children. So it's not like mm. he like reanimates his corpse per se. Um, but obviously he has like physical substance of some kind. Yes, certainly. Um, and then another thing that we forgot to mention about David. Also, you know, his name's David. Do you want to talk about that for a little bit? Whew, uh, yeah, really identified. He has dark hair as well, which mm-hmm. same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wears jeans. <laughs> Absolutely. He wears a shirt. Yep. I'm doing that right now. Two of them even. He's constantly drinking. Um <laughs> But yes, and so the other thing about David is that he is has lost all of his family. Yes. So I think is it... He's like touched by death. Yes. Death is... Well, death is present in his life. Becomes certainly. him. but Becomes his Uncle Harry at the very least. <laughs> Anyways, yes. So his... Uh, his. No, let's go back to that. What no, no, we're good. Death becomes his Uncle Harry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, that's good his father died in a plane crash or in a car crash coming home right or in a car crash coming home from the airport he he goes off on a business trip and never comes back is basically the idea um and then his mom gets cancer yeah uh and then his sister like sort of has like a lifelong 
I I interpreted it as leukemia, perhaps. Oh, really? Like an I, early childhood leukemia that like reoccurred. Yeah, yeah. I sort of just read it as like she was born with something where she was probably always going to have a reduced lifespan. But yes, is is usually shown like sickly. Sometimes she's on wheelchair crutches. Bound, sometimes she's yeah. in a wheelchair. Um, and then sort of like wasting away at some point. Um, here's something that I had sort of thought about, but that, or at least something I considered as a possibility that probably isn't in the text of the comic at all. But like, do you think that other members of his family got the same deal? Uh, that's it. That's interesting. I, I don't think so, but certainly like there's a recurring theme of, like his mother and father are both creatives who as a child he thinks are like so successful and world famous but we get like clear and clear indications as the story unfolds that in fact they were neither of them ever really had artistic success like they were just able to kind of get by um basically they have like the life that uh uncle harry projects for david where he's like just like move upstate become a community college art professor like do your art on the weekends, get by, never be fulfilled artistically. Um, and it, it seems like that is also the case for them. And and even his sister, I think he says at one point, like he's describing their storage facility where um, all his dad's like unsold books are sitting and all his mm-hmm. mom's like unbought paintings. And then he says like even his sister has like a half written play that she never finished. That's That's also just like sitting there in the storage shed. Yes, the sis- Su- Susie, the sister, is definitely implied to be, like, very talented, but sort of never got the opportunity to fulfill. Right. Um, but yeah, so Uncle Heffy, that's Death and Harry combined. <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of looks like Hugh Hefner. <laughs> yes, Uncle Heffy. <laughs> I guess I could have gone with Uncle Derry. Um, but Uncle Heffy, he gives David this, as you said, Faustian bargain where David will sort of get this unspecified artistic ability. And if he accepts the offer to have this ability, he will have 200 days to use it however he wishes, and then he will die. And then... And he and he gets like a an experience of what death is like, so that uh, <laughs> yes. he knows exactly what he's getting into. Uncle Harry gives him a glimpse into the void, certainly. <laughs> um, and then, so but then before this can even sort of take place, and then yeah, and then so we see a flashback of sort of his life story, um, with everyone in his life sort of passing away, mm-hmm. and then we get this very <laughs> strange, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of things in the uh, the comic that don't really work for me, this part is uh, bizarre. I'm, I'm I'm trying to figure out what like sort of like the thematic significance of it is, or is there one? I'm not sure because it it's like yet another art form, and in a way, like the only successful piece of art that we see in the in the whole comic, in so far as like. And Finn's sculptures. Oh, well, yes. <laughs> his, his sabotage sculpture. But um, as far as, like, effect on its intended audience and even, like, mainstream success, it seems like it becomes, like, a viral video. Um, <laughs> yes. It's basically, like, improv everywhere. Yeah. Which is, like, like flash mob. Uh, yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, basically what this is is there's 
sort of everyone turns and looks at David suddenly. Um, and it's like a huge crowd. <laughs> yeah. And then everyone bows down to him. Um, and then an angel or a, you know, a winged individual appears before him, tells him everything will be all right, kisses him. And then, but then, but she, she disappears in a flock of birds. Yeah. And then the crowd <laughs> is also gone. Which, and so, uh, and so later we learned that this was in fact, like a, a stunt, like a theatrical stunt sort of that uh, was being pulled off by this or, or sort of artist's collective or acting troupe. Yeah. But it's <laughs> it's clearly Matt, like, are, do they say this? Like, they, they sort of explain it. It's like, they, oh, they yeah, like, hand we had a, it. Yeah, we had a like, big effects budget. Yeah, it's like, our special what? effects guy is out of this world. He's he so her, good. <laughs> he made her dissipate into a flock of doves. Yeah, it's it's bizarre, and especially like at that point in the book, uh, like before it had been revealed, and the only thing that has happened really so far is like he gets a visit from his great uncle Harry, who turns out to be Death Incarnate. I was like, yes, what's going on? <laughs> yes, there's a very there's a very supernatural bent. I think that's intentional. So like, there's a very supernatural bent to the book already. So the fact that this then happens leads you to sort of automatic, like, it's like, well, I'm already sort of in this zone. So I'm willing to accept this as like something that happens in this world. Yeah. Um, And so so is he, apparently. It's true. So what exactly? So definitely there's the idea of sort of all eyes being on him, which is goes into the themes of sort of your work being noticed, your name being remembered, uh-huh. you know, sort of having that sort of public acknowledgement and acceptance, which is a very big part of what this book is about. Um, certainly something that David is very much striving for, even if he is unwilling to compromise his art for it. And then you sort of have um, the character who, you know, we later discover that the woman who is this winged creature is Meg who we'll talk about uh, a little later, but, and sort of her appearing as this vision and this sort of like supernatural thing. It, it very much enforces that, like the manic pixie dream girl idea, which we're talking about. Yeah, definitely. Even like, (laughs) obviously here manifested as like, she, she swoops in just as he's like basically embraced death, like decided he would rather be, artistically enriched than alive and then swoops into like sort of save his soul here and then later we also learn is not literally an angel but is the kind of girl who does that (laughs) yes she does save his life she well yeah she does save his life and is like the sort of like free-spirited actress who dresses up as an angel and participates in the flash mobs entitled the sad man which like <laughs> I forgot about that. Tough, that's very funny tough stuff for david yes we, we we later find out that david was specifically chosen for this because he looked so sad <laughs> which is a very good bit but yes and then so then so then david basically is just like uh, okay <laughs> and that then, was weird and he's also drunk, so maybe that uh, informs some yes, of true. that. Yes, that's true. And we will also like learn as time goes on has like these kind of crazy, bizarre dreams, seemingly fairly regularly. Maybe not like yeah, that's true. waking hallucinations, but this is far from the only like strange urban like fantasy dream that he has. Absolutely. Uh, 
Yes, very much so. And then, so we he goes on to this meeting he has, which is with his friend Ollie, who is like his best friend, and he's known him since childhood. Um, and this meeting is with Penelope Hammer, a mm-hmm. great comic book name. Yeah, <laughs> who is sort of like a, another one of these patrons. And yeah, we, we have and like on been... the board of a few galleries and things like that. Yes, of MoMA and stuff like that. And yeah. and we, we haven't been introduced to the character of... I forget what the name of the guy... Ollie. Who, no, no. Oh. <laughs> Uncle Harry. <laughs> but the guy the guy who was sort of David's patron and then dumped oh, him. Oh, yeah. Um, this mad breakup. Yeah, it's like Mr... It's like Mr. Hammerschmidt. <laughs> I know her name is Hammer, but... Mr. D something. Mr. D is the guy who runs the gallery that carries his work, but he's like... And then he also, um, he's like a sort of comedian who becomes a teacher or something like that. Is that correct? (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) He he finds out that he's entitled to a big inheritance, even though he's stupid. Yeah, but he has to spend... That's Brewster's Millions, never mind. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Wait, is that what Mr. Deeds is about? Yeah. He has to spend it all? Uh, No, no, no. He doesn't have to spend it all. I I think he just inherits it, but is stupid. (laughs) <laughs> well famously that's a class that's a it's a very very classic uh, what if a stupid like, man was rich yeah something that's never happened <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh but yeah so basically he has sort of a prospective new patron but at this point he is very jaded and very sort of cynical about the financial element of the art world and about you know everything else to do with the art world basically he is he's very like he's principled in the in a very annoying way <laughs> like yeah classic... to say the least no nobody <laughs> nobody seems to like this aspect of him including himself yes and he another thing which becomes more prominent later is he has made this sort of series of promises to himself and like his one thing is that he never breaks a promise well, because so, that was his first promise. Oh, right. Yes. He promised his father who that was he would dead, keep his promises. That he would never break a promise. But it's like he'll never accept a handout from anyone, which is like, oh, what a terrible promise to Seriously. make to yourself. <laughs> uh, I love handouts. Um, <laughs> uh, but, check but the Patreon like, link in these uh, uh, <laughs> yes. episode notes. <laughs> There's a Boss Baby 2 commentary on there you're going to want to hear. Um I think, wait, should we actually have a Patreon? I think it would be, no. funny. I think it would be funny if we just had a Patreon. Uh, there was like a big Twitter thing recently uh, where <laughs> Gail Simone, who is like a, a noted comics scribe, made some tweet about Doctor Who, um, basically to the effect of like the people, the I can't I can't remember exactly what she said, but basically she made a suggestion that there were people complaining about something to do with Doctor Who who don't even watch the show um, or that there's well, like a subset of people who are like big Doctor Who fans, quote unquote, but don't watch the show. Um, and some some guy like misunderstood what she was saying and went off on her and it quickly devolved into like, you don't even read comics, even though you have like 600 credits. Uh 
and like on and on and then at some point she just posted the link to his patreon <laughs> which has zero <laughs> subscribers and was like i'm creating content about like doctor who comics blah 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 this stuff <laughs> and, uh, it was just like the most the most ruthless thing i've ever <laughs> yeah. seen somebody do on twitter is post a link to the person <laughs> yeah, they're no, arguing with zero subscriber patreon <laughs> there's nothing more cutting than a very small patreon <laughs> <laughs> um but yes and so speaking of patreons um one one potential super, freaking hammer yes one super subscriber sort of she ta- she has sort of invited david and she so she asks his thoughts on these uh works by uh finn yes who is sort of this up-and-coming sculptor we learn um and <laughs> has so do you know who DJ Lance is? Uh, I I googled him. He's just like he's uh, from Yo Gabba Gabba. Is yeah, that, correct? that is that that is correct. DJ Lance Rock. Uh, yeah, he's just like a musician. Oh, he's the host. I because because I was like, isn't Yo Gabba Gabba like cartoons? And the answer is that DJ Lance Rock is the host. Also, this is wild. Are you ready for this? Famous musicians who have appeared on the show, i.e. Yo Gabba Gabba, include... Uh-huh. I'll just do some uh, selected hits here. Mo's Death. Oh, interesting. Bootsy Collins. <laughs> the Killers. Jimmy Eat World. Solange Knowles. What? <laughs> Taking okay. Back Sunday. The Aquabats. Devo. Of Montreal. That's insane. <laughs> Chromeo. My Chemical Romance, oh. Weezer, <laughs> The Roots, Paul Williams, MGMT, Peter Bjorn and John, The Shins, The Flaming Lips, Blitzen Trapper. Come on, man. <laughs> Biz Marquee. I was surprised you skipped over Devo and Anne Hesh. <laughs> I, I said Devo. I don't, who, is it Anne, Anne Hesh? Is she, a, no, is she know, even maybe. a musician? I thought it was Hesh. Do you think no, John she's better. Tesh? Yeah, maybe she's better known as an actress. I think. Remember when uh, John Tesh made Round Ball Rock? Yes. <laughs> yeah, quite a, quite a list. I was not familiar with the uh, the musical or other stylings of DJ Lance Rock. I was not either, and and I didn't even bother to look it up because I didn't really care that much. But there was a part of me that was like, "Is this even a real celebrity?" <laughs> <laughs> or is it just like something that was invented for this? But now looking at the pictures of DJ Lance, I'm like, there he is. The man himself. Put yes. him on some aluminum posts. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so these sort of very like crass, like almost like Warhol knockoff. Like I feel like that's like the go-to for like any work of art that wants to show like a very hacky or like a very crass artist is to show like oh like i'm appropriating pop culture figures into my art like i feel like that's a very easy shorthand for like this person sucks (laughs) (laughs) yeah um speaking of which i watched role models last night Uh and there's a joke about how uh you know actually starbucks you know tall means large and grande (laughs) also means large wait i thought that was a joke from uh what's the bromance one with jason siegel and paul red yeah isn't that from that 
No, it's from role models, but they uh. were released in the same year, so I understand your confusion. Because <laughs> it Paul that like it's Paul Rudd that does that scene, right? Yes, it's Paul Rudd. So role models is Paul Rudd and Sean William Scott, <laughs> of course, um, as role models. But yes, it's and so it's like uh, it's it's so painful. And so it's like it's like actually Venti's Venti's the only one who doesn't, which doesn't mean large. And then the line which really made me cringe was like congratulations you're stupid in three languages that's like oh <laughs> a classic that, like was anything ever like more written by a screenwriter than <laughs> you're stupid in three languages uh, uh anyways <laughs> so uh david lies and tells penelope that he is that um he's, he's working, working on a new on a, series yeah which is even more of a lie because, as we find out, <laughs> David has taken to exclusively carving in granite. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which is, uh, I imagine, a time-consuming process. Yes, hammer and chisel, uh, <laughs> not not sufficient to present, like, six new sculptures in, like, three weeks or however long it is that she gives him. Yeah, uh, Donaldson also is the name of the uh, yes the guy who dumps. Yes, so he he has this opportunity, but he is despondent. Even though, like, he hasn't not yet figured out what his artistic like gifting is that will enable him to uh, get this done. Um, slash, like, kind of thinks that he maybe hallucinated it, given the like weird angel thing. Um, and Ollie sends his his friend and like kind of a curator in training. Um, sensing his uh, dark mood invites him to a party which he goes to and uh is obnoxious at <laughs> yeah this is also um this is very scott pilgrim that he goes, yeah that he goes to this party and then sees a girl who like he didn't necessarily believe to exist before um, but yeah so so he, he goes to this party which is at, like a really weird warehouse thing yeah rants at people about murakami a thing that he has done several times before <laughs> seemingly he, he sucks <laughs> he, oh he definitely sucks like i think just it's unequivocal that he sucks throughout this um there and there's also there's a really cool artistic thing here so yes there's sort of this montage of him at the party and then where it's you know just like very small fragments which i found very cool yeah where it's like you know like uh, a thing he does a lot is sort of he cuts off the thought the word bubbles so you can't like fully see what people are saying like you sort of get the snatches of conversation in the way that you would like sort of overhear things yeah uh, but another thing he does which i thought was really cool is like at the top of the page he includes like a cut off panel and multiple like cut off where like the top of the page like it's it's as if it's sort of the infinite canvas thing where it's as if you're scrolling down and right. you stop scrolling like halfway between a panel. So you only see the bottom half of the panel at the top of the page, which I thought yeah. was a very cool. Uh, he he does it at the sides and bottom as well. Yeah. Which I thought was a really cool sort of move to yeah. illustrate like, yeah, the whole night is going exactly like this. And it's just like... <laughs> boring conversation to boring conversation intercut with him like just like kind of standing around by himself and then like a few shots of like his phone him checking his phone to show the like night kind of crawling past with nothing eventful or interesting happening um he overhears finn 
basically admitting that he's using uh ollie to get like the right eyes on his work and is planning to dump him as soon as that is accomplished and then through the crowd spots the angel meg creepily and feverishly (laughs) follows her up to the roof where it appears to be the after party for the cast of the sad man basically yes like out like like almost everyone who is at at like at least this portion of the party is a part of this street theater troupe who are who have created this sort of like flash mob experience um and then I would say, understandably, David does not react well to the yeah. to finding out, like... Throws up on the MacBook. <laughs> yes, uh, a good bit. Um, and, like, basically just, like, has a freak out. Um, and then, so he ends up sort of having this interaction with Meg. And maybe this is, like, where we can sort of start talking about the nature of Meg. So the thing about Meg is that, like, she's so she's very, like... Her whole thing is like she's in the moment, she's sort of carefree, she's a risk taker. And um and then so do we want to like dig into the the meg of it all? <laughs> Why not? I say. Yeah, so so basically so as the comic goes on, it obviously as you would sort of assume, it becomes a romance between uh, date. I keep wanting to call him Kevin for some reason, <laughs> but it keeps. It becomes a romance between David and Meg. They sort of have like sort of David has an unrequited crush on her, um, and then eventually they get together and all this stuff. And then eventually we find out that Meg is sort of has an unspecified sort of mental illness. Um, she, you know, she's manic depressive. She's yeah. Bipolar. I think it's pretty clearly bipolar. In, tr- in terms of like the suggest it's not explicitly stated but that seems to be the suggestion that is being strongly made yeah certainly like the manic depressive sort of uh, dichotomy is very present mm-hmm. where she will sort of be very excitable and carefree and then like depressed pushes people away things like that um so let's talk about it <laughs> Because this, I think, is like very much the primary thing you would look to when you're labeling her as a Met pixie dream girl. That and, you know, it's so interesting because, like, he must have known what he was doing, because in the way that in the way that he presents her as this angel or angelic figure who is sort of giving David hope in this very trying time. Like, he knows what he's doing there, and I think he is intentionally doing that which means that he is aware of sort of this idea that a stereotype exists of this kind of character but then it feels like he doesn't quite do enough to detach her from that character the waveform that i just made looks like a penis Uh, (laughs) dude nice (laughs) screen cap that for me 56 20 bro I yeah I think so I think there's a lot of things at play here one of them is that explicitly Meg is inspired by his wife Ivy not to like tip the hand of uh, stuff that he talks about later on um, but yes he right he writes this in an epilogue basically yeah and and I think like having spent as much sort of time quote unquote with Scott as 
we have or as I have, it was pretty clear to me, like right from the get go, the extent to which she is ex- inspired by Ivy, especially um, when you consider Brandy from Zot, who he also has described as being uh, inspired by Ivy in a lot of ways. She she has a Brandy energy for sure, maybe not quite as um, sort of like sort of like ditzy as he writes Brandy as being. Um but but certainly in a lot of other ways. So I think in in some ways he feels like he's maybe in the clear a little bit because he's like, well, this isn't just like a trope. This is like uh, someone who is like a real a real person to me who I know and who I have like this these are the reasons why I love her. And, and, but at the same time, I think that he is trying to sort of subvert it or distance it. But I also think that like, him giving her this this mental health issue this like manic depressive swing is kind of him trying to subvert it but i don't think successfully because i think he's trying to be like well she's not just like this like flighty free spirit she actually has like uh, a mental illness that like causes her to behave this way but yeah it just it just to me almost sort of like reinforces it especially the fact that she's like don't let me push you away it feels like a very cliche thing that is is still like in in some ways the like that that sort of like fickleness is almost part of the character too you know what i mean especially as like the the conception of it has kind of evolved and people have tried to i think sort of like continue to use the trope but kind of insulate themselves from the criticism by like adding some like layers or depths to the character so i think he he has like just sort of done the same thing and uh, as an unintended result just sort of reinforced the association yeah it's sort of you could you could almost i just sort of thought of this comparison but you could almost call it the john green like it's a it's a very John Green move because a lot of John like looking for Alaska, Paper Towns, um, I think maybe to a lesser extent Fault in Our Stars, but like the sort of idea of John Green is like he's presenting characters that seem to fit this mold very deeply, and then the sort of there's a turn at some point. I think that's that's in both Looking for Alaska and Paper Towns, where it's like yeah. you like it's like basically it's like you're not in a movie like you're not in this story like you don't understand like these are real people with real emotions and that's right. sort of like what you need to learn is like not to put these people on a pedestal in that way yeah yeah i think that sums it up nicely is that like the the like john greenification of the manic pixie dream girl is that she does like she saves him and then she teaches him a lesson about how she doesn't exist just to save him and then like disappears yes or dies Ooh, spoilers. Uh, but yes like i i think the, the problem is in how the character is positioned in the story because the story is about david mm-hmm. and so she i think is always going to be sort of a prop to advance david's story in a lot of ways even though like i like meg as a character like i think meg is a pretty interesting character but in terms of the way she's positioned in the story she does exist sort of primarily as like, well, like what is like, how is she responding to David? Blah, blah, blah. And sort of what she says very explicitly is like, well, like not everything is about you. Like she, like, you know, it, he gives her a history and the like things in her life that don't have anything to do with David. But I think because 
we are approaching it with David as our point of view character and that these are revelations to David in the same way that they're revelations to us, it, it can't help but put her in that light where everything that like everything, whenever we learn something about her, we're thinking about it in the context of like, how does this impact David or, you know, like what does, how does David feel about learning this information? Because perhaps we're like, you know, if David is shocked at something, we're shocked at something. Like and I David was is... shocked throughout the book. <laughs> what, what is the joke uh, That the David you're talking about is me. Oh, I see. <laughs> um, sure. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> Uh, no, you really derailed. <laughs> uh, here's a, here's a separate but related question: Does this book pass the Bechtel test? I can't oh, think. That's um, a really good question. I don't think that it does. I also I think that there should be a corollary to the Bechtel test where the the two women talking can't be um, during Thanksgiving dinner preparation. <laughs> 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 or yeah that that is true or meal preparation of any kind um yeah i don't think that it does and again in part because david is our viewpoint character and we never leave his perspective so like when meg is out of his field of view she, like we don't follow her ever right like it's all through david's eyes and so by virtue of him being a man, like it can't pass the Bechtel test because if we're seeing it, he's there or was there. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I guess. Yeah. Uh, not yet. Yeah. I guess, I guess that to say that, like, I wouldn't say that this is exactly like a feminist text, but I don't think it's like actively anti-feminist <laughs> or anything. Like, I don't, I don't, <sighs> I think that Scott was like trying to do right by the character of Meg. Yes, exactly. I think it's yes, I think it's a more passive, which is maybe like just something that we see. I think you see like just with older people a lot where it's like you're trying even if you're aware of these things and you're sort of trying to steer away from these things, you're still viewing everything like through this prism of like a very male centric like story sort of thought. So they, like the, the story he constructed is like a story about a man and like a story about a man who like meets a strange girl and he falls in love with her. So like you can't, you can't get away from the maleness of it all mm -hmm. because your basic conceit of your story is so rooted in like this experience through the eyes of a male. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of unavoidable. Yeah, and when you consider that, like, Scott has, like, taken fire previously for trying to, like, write an experience that he didn't really understand, and then in Reinventing Comics talked about how, like, not to say that, you know, you shouldn't write the perspective of a character who has experiences that you haven't had, but to do so is guessing. Like, I think it's understandable that when it came time for him to, to write a story, he was like, well... I'm a white male artist. <laughs> like, I guess I'm going to write a story about a white male artist. Um, and, and yeah, I, I can't really like fault him for that. Yeah. That, that is a very tricky line to thread the, the, the line between sort of like, well, you should be writing what you know, but you also like, that doesn't mean like you should be writing to the exclusion of anything that you don't know, I guess, which, right. which is something he says in reinventing comics. And you know, there are characters of color in this comic. Um, and, you know, there are female characters in this comic who have value beyond being women. Mm -hmm. um, 
But yes, like I said, it's it's still sort of so filtered through this very like male centric story and like a sort of very male, I think, idea or like, you know, a, a very like patriarchal sort of idea that it's like, here's a man and then the man gets power. Like it's, you know, it's not it's not boy and girl meet each other. It's boy meets girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's very much he it's it's about how his life is impacted by meeting meg rather than vice versa in right. any way really right and i i think that if he had like written the story from meg's perspective he probably would have like had a lot of difficulty with it and i don't think people would have liked the the product no and and you 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 probably have to change some sort of fundamental things if it was from meg's well perspective. yes just from a like story structure standpoint certainly Yes, he has he has this crazy night. He realizes that she is like an actress and they have a brief conversation and then he like wanders the streets in kind of like confusion and desolation that um he feels like he doesn't believe that everything is going to get better as she as she said. And then like as the sun rises, just as Uncle Happy foretold, collapses and discovers his newfound ability to use his hands to reshape any material however he pleases, as if it's clay, essentially. Yeah. Well, and and even like he will later detail again Scott struggling to get away from his superhero. Yes, his power, <laughs> his power to, set later expands de- dramatically. Detail the power set to specify that. Um, once he like lays on hands he can kind of will the material to do what he wants he doesn't have to actually shape it himself like right. like literally sculpt it yeah and so then we get a, a, a cool scene where i really like the sort of idea that is presented right off the bat where he sort of plunges his hands into this granite and it sort of like liquefies and then as he pulls away from it, it's sort of trapped in that very, like, liquefied state. And so it's a very cool look, even though, you know, like, we don't really, which is, again, sort of the magic of comics. Like, we don't really see it as, like, it's it's sort of two frames where, they're, where they're, it's the same thing that we're seeing. But it's very clear, at least to me, like, in one panel it's liquid and then in the next panel yeah. it's solid. Like, as soon as he takes his hands off, it's, like, granite again. Which cool sculpture? You should have uh, should have put that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, that's a really cool sculpture. Like it, it looks like exactly what it, like you know it looks like a piece of splashing liquid, but it's made out of granite. That rocks. Um, but yes, and so he sort of like just like goes crazy. He makes a ton of sculptures, uh, including one of Meg, like with the wings and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he accepts Uncle Harry's deal. Yes, so 200 days to live starting now, uh, and he can do whatever he wants with that, uh, this power that he now possesses. Yes, and then, so then immediately we jump ahead six weeks, um, we get a sort of recurring motif, which is his chess games with Harry, which, (laughs) again, it's like, is something that they sort of like remark on, like, it's like, oh, like, playing chess with death, that's funny. Um, and it is funny. <laughs> yes, Harry then... has something of an obsession with chess. Mm-hmm. Like the Scott McCloud comic. Don't yeah. worry, I understand. <laughs> um, and that yes, and then and another thing that we sort of get into with Harry, which which is another pervading theme, is like Harry when someone dies, he sort of like 
learn he like feels all of their life basically or like sees all of their life and then another important thing is that when someone dies he gives them their life flashes before their eyes like in the moments before they die and it lasts a long time like it lasts longer than what your perception would be so you know that's chill um and so we learn you know that scott is or not scott (laughs) whoops that david is sort of working away he's still like very much a starving artist but he has sort of been planning all of this and like working in secret and then the plan is like there's sort of this viewing where there will be a massive reveal where we see like literally hundreds of sculptures uh that he has created over like the past six weeks yes just uh just going going for broke all or nothing as he puts it at one point which is the title of this chapter yeah it um it quickly becomes clear that while each of these sculptures is like intensely personal for him they are by and large like not really appreciated by anybody else yeah like some of them and yes the, so sort of ollie is going through and looking through all of them and he is basically able to directly link all of these to specific instances in scott's life um and then it's like, some uh, of these are like david's life <laughs> sorry <Dave. laughs> i keep doing that and it's like i mean like i think it is scott in a way and i think it's also like because scott is i feel very self-critical he is critical of David in the way that he would be critical of himself, which is interesting for your main character. Um, but yeah, so like some of them are more abstract. Some of them, like one is just literally a backpack. And I was like, this sucks, dude. <laughs> <laughs> uh... But yes, he's so, so I think sort of his maybe, and maybe this gets into the idea of sort of like telling your own story versus telling like, a, like having a broader worldview. Cause like, all of these are so directly referential. Yes, they're so closely tied to his specific experiences in his life that it's it's almost that because they're so specific and personal that they don't work as like pieces of art for anyone except himself. And also the thing that Ollie gets into is that like it it sort of lacks it's it's too scatterbrained and to like going off in too many different directions in order for people to appreciate it including like a very lifelike sculpture of Susie, which is like he's just like whoa bro like <laughs> you really can't <laughs> yes yeah, so he he shows these sculptures to ollie like minutes before they're supposed to be like giving a show basically um to like a small group of perspective tastemakers like people who will people who will affect his ability to like get shown and things like that yeah um and they come in and basically you know rake him over the coals a little bit uh they're very dismissive of it it doesn't go well certainly no yeah they're they're basically like it's over uh is how david perceives the the response um and on top of that is now completely out of money 
um, is evicted from his apartment after the sculptures <laughs> crash through the floorboards <laughs> and almost crush his downstairs neighbor. Um, and his uh, his Russian landlords. <laughs> Speaking of sensitive cultural depictions, yeah, his weird his Russian landlord who like appears in one scene, but then is referenced. Yeah, is a specter like, over so frequently. <laughs> <laughs> like the idea that David owes the Russian landlord like twenty thousand dollars, yeah. <laughs> and like is being actively hunted to repay it, even though like that and it's like that never comes back. Like it's referenced all the time, but never actually pays off. And so, yeah, it's basically David is, like, completely screwed. Like, he has Becomes no house. homeless, like, has, overnight, yes. yeah. He has no money. He has no anything else. Um, also, around at the same time, we see that the guy... So, basically, there's a guy in a Red Sox hat who Harry was talking... Heffy was talking about earlier and was, like, sort of talking about the guy's life. And then, like hours later or you know that evening david sees that this man has in fact died and like been crushed by scaffolding which is another thing like so yes the idea that sort of he is only aware uncle heavy that is is only aware of these stories when people are like imminently going to die right um and yes so then david's homeless he's sleeping on a bench he's doing whatever yes he uh he hits like ultimate rock bottom when he has like a memory of a conversation that he had with his parents where they tell him that he doesn't have to be an artist um but his dad says whatever you do uh make a name for yourself and he pulls out like a new york city phone book and looks up david smith and like runs his finger down like pages of entries for david smith uh and and yeah just kind of like wallows in the extent to which he has failed to make a name for himself yes and then the big and so then this ultimately culminates in he's like at a subway he's yelling at his hands <laughs> There's a kind of a gross part where he like he talks about like how he's hooking up with a girl. He's like he's talking about how the hands were like up her shirt. It's just like <laughs> oh, don't talk to your hands about this man. They've seen plenty. Um, and so then he like it's not totally clear. Like is it like he's trying to commit suicide or if he's just like freaking out? I think yeah. I think he's just freaking out because he doesn't try and jump in front of the train. He just like bounces himself <laughs> off it, into the as it like passes by um, in a rage yes and then blacks out uh and awakens on um on meg's couch yes and wait is it so meg and sam are roommates correct? yes that's correct um they have a totoro poster in their house which is yep. cool chill chill vibes <laughs> yeah he um, so he meets so meg is there along with roommate sam and her ex slash like best friend marcus um and we learn cool that guy. yeah chill chill dude also big totoro vibes <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's absolutely right actually so they they kind of explain to him what happened uh feed him we we learn that this is something that meg does not infrequently uh, bring home dudes who are <laughs> freaking out in public, feed them and uh, recuperate them or nurse them back to health. Yes. And then also we find out that another thing that happens a lot is that 
people will fall in like it's it's sort of implied and talked about throughout the book that like people fall in love with Meg very easily. Yes. Uh, also, just want to sidetrack to note briefly that when David eats the delicious soup, he does it like how Brock eats those buns in Pokemon. So <laughs> <laughs> mouth is just real hanging speedy. open, and the sound effect says slurp, 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 slurp. <laughs> yes, exactly. A nice jelly donut. Yes. Do you know about that? Uh, I feel that <laughs> like, I do. It's like this. Oh, video oh, like, from, like the like, dub, dub, right? Yeah. He like holds up like one of those like onigiri like rice triangles. <laughs> He's like, "How about a jelly donut?" Uh, anyway, so yes, they so they sort of start hanging out. Um, the other important thing is that uh, David says expresses that he is in love with Meg, with, to which you know she's obviously understandably a little like this is a little much. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like that's, that's like, that's sort of what like we're talking about with the sort of the John Greenification where it's like, it's understood and stated explicitly. That's like, well, like you can't just like say you're in love with someone that you barely know. Like that's yeah. weird. And like, you shouldn't do that. But also it's fine. <laughs> yes. But then also like it's true love and they do end up together and like it ends up being totally fine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so they sort of start to hang out. Um, oh, there's one part where, like, the one gallery that carries David's work, like, the guy is, like, closing up shop, and he tells David that there's a Russian guy looking for him. Yes, <laughs> Mr. D uh, is the gallery owner. Yeah, this is the segment where we first sort of start to get a sense of the extent to which David is, like, kind of an asshole. <laughs> Yes, we sort of fill in the cracks about like David's working career slash slash like the extent to which he does not really have any consideration for others um, other than Meg basically and like Ollie to an extent in that like Meg immediately perceives that Mr. D who has like a for lease sign on his gallery is like pretty broken up about the fact that he's going out of business seems to have been crying um is probably broke but still makes it a point to make sure that david is paid for his last sculpture which sold there and it's clear that like none of these ideas have even occurred to to david and like he you know somewhat guiltily like not really convincing himself but like dismisses the idea when meg brings it up yes and we also, we got the sense, so David himself, like, he burned a lot of bridges sort of on his way out the door with Donaldson. Yeah. Um, and he is, yeah, sort of a pariah in the art world. Yes, yeah, so it's like, there's a lot he to sucks dislike about David. Yeah, he's, like, <laughs> Everybody he does, knows like, it. <laughs> he's sort of an asshole, like, he's talented, but it's not like, it's not like he's, like, an incredible artist who is just, like, hard to work with. Like, it's just like, yeah, yeah he's good. But then it's like very clearly not worth the <laughs> the energy for most people. Yeah, and like yeah, it's it's interesting too because like to to say he's talented, like even the book like doesn't really seem to be sure if he's talented or not. He's certainly not sure if he's talented or not. He gets like in arguments about like he he believes there is such a thing as like good art and it's distinct from bad art but also acknowledges that there's like a degree to which it's subjective, but also he doesn't think that it is totally subjective. But then he's also like, he's not even sure if he's a good artist. Yeah. I, and I, I do, I do understand this sort of idea. Cause like, this is sort of like an idea I wrestle with as well. Like 
he the way he puts it is like there is an objective difference between a Kandinsky and a coat rack. Right. Just a good turn of phrase. But like like there is some sort of objective quality that you can ascribe to art, maybe. But then also like ultimately like what does objective quality really mean if it like people don't like it and it doesn't it's not like worth money. Yeah, this this feels to me like something that McLeod has wrestled with kind of throughout the the critical books too, which is that like he obviously he doesn't think that artists should compromise their vision in order to achieve success with with like the public. But uh, yeah, I guess I guess it's like it boils down to a question about the purpose of art where if the purpose of art is strictly self-expression, then certainly David is like a talented and prolific artist. But if the definition of successful art is that you are able to make an impression on the viewer or the the consumer, basically, if it's if it's about how other people respond to the art, then he is like undeniably a failure because most of his work fails to do so. Yes. And that, yeah, that's sort of like that's it's a it's it's a tough <laughs> it's a tough thing to wrestle with. Like I think it is like a very legitimate like there's gray area and there's sort of like room for discussion there because like and I think that's why it's interesting that like sort of his the sculpting power that he gains is basically just like he he does have like an unimpeachable technical like sort of talent that like like it's like you can't you can't refute that he is like he has tremendous abilities as a sculptor mainly because like he has these powers that make it easy for him but like it's like no one else could make those sculptures in like that short amount of time or whatever or like make you know sculptures with that level of intricate detail but ultimately like what does that mean and i think this kind of gets to the core of what we talked about originally of like why does scott want to make this book and like tell this story is that because of his like work in understanding comics and the sequels and like his status as kind of like the the uh like oracle of comics uh, to like the mainstream world um he has been recognized and acknowledged as a technician who understands like the ins and outs and the nuances of telling stories through comics. He knows how to do it. Um, he knows he like, there's no question that from a technical standpoint, he knows exactly how to do what he wants to do in comics. But I, there's like a question for himself of like, how much is that worth in and of itself? Can I apply the techniques to make art that resonates with people? Yeah, and that that is a discussion. They they sort of get into that discussion like more directly um, a little later on in this. So, so it, it sort of turns into more of like more vignette where David starts to keep a diary where he's sort of, we sort of get this like ongoing narration for him. So he's sort of like ingratiated himself into Meg's world where like he's close with her and, you know, he's sort of like with her friend group, you know, Meg is an actor and she goes to see him in a play. Or he goes to see her in plays and things like that. Um, and then, so we, the one other thing that we haven't really touched on yet is that, um, Ollie is essentially curating 
this what is it like a sort of like an yeah. exhibition of some sort like he sort of has creative reign over well there, there's like one showing. spot that he is allowed to like make the call on yeah he's considering several artists yes i think it's like it's it says five artists one of them is david one of them is finn who is scott's like or why do i keep calling people scott um who is ollie's like kind of boyfriend and then there's also this character mira bati who is like uh like 30 something woman who like sort of recently got into the sculpting world and is very good like scott recognizes that she is arguably more talented than himself and like probably the best of anyone he's compete yes probably (laughs) (laughs) i say scott again that's insane i'm just calling it's like it's not even like a specific character i'm just calling everyone scott um but yes and so they sort of get into this more explicit conversation when it's it's the three of them together david ollie and mira where they talk about some of that so like david talks about like it's very arbitrary sort of what gets seen and what doesn't um and then mira says like maybe the market is the medium for some artists Maybe what looks crass to us is just truth to material for them. The viewers are the material, which is sort of the idea that, like, yeah, the the purpose of art in one paradigm is, like, to be seen by people and to connect with people. And so if you're not doing that, then what kind of art are you doing? Um, And then David sort of goes on this rant, which I think is in line with maybe what Scott thinks, where, like, he says everything he makes either seems to be too earnest or emotional or it seems to be too like dry and academic which if you look at scott's career it's easy to see (laughs) the parallels there who like someone who has made like some very earnest and emotional work and someone who has made some very uh dry and academic work and another thing that we get into which sort of comes back again in the sort of finale part is that like sort of the way that all of humanity is connected in this sort of like unbroken chain stretching back through time every few thousand <laughs> one years, might so say. to speak. <laughs> yeah, he there there's like a kind of fixation with death too where he he's like sort of fascinated with the idea that um yeah like life is a never ending chain but you can choose to like be the last link. Yes, that you yeah. can end your own bloodline or end your own, you know, legacy, so to speak. Like, if you don't, and this have thought children. makes it very horny, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, he imagines boobs. <laughs> have we mentioned that he's a virgin yet? <laughs> we do really need to talk about that because he is a virgin, which is insane. Which ends up being a relevant plot point. <laughs> A major plot point. Um, And I wonder if that's autobiographical. (laughs) (laughs) I can't engage with that that idea. Um, Another thing is that... And then, yeah, so again, uh, we see more sort of relationship scenes with him and Meg. Uh, This is where we hear about the promises that we talked about earlier. One of which is to never pay to see another movie directed by a Swede. Yeah, classic. Um, he also, like, starts sculpting Meg, and so there's sort of that, like, intimacy there. Mm-hmm. 
This is where she, uh, so again, this is a scene where I think he's trying to subvert the, or at least engage with the Manic Pixie Dream Girl thing, where he he literally says, you're an object. <laughs> she <laughs> yes. says, no, I'm not. Yeah, which again, like, segues into like a very intimate conversation between the two of them where he, like, uh, for him to say you're an object is not like meant to be derogatory or or minimizing in the same way it normally would be when you say someone is like objectified yes but also like it seems like like the way it does kind of feel like a good example of like the way that he sort of is commenting on these things it does it's a little clumsy like it's a little like you're not really disguising your themes here and i guess it's hard to disguise your themes when you're making a book that's like about art mm-hmm. or about an artist but like <laughs> that that's sort of like you're an object no i'm not is does feel a little bit ham-fisted and so then this this sort of portion of the book culminates um you know there's hanukkah <laughs> that's yes. all this stuff happens but then <laughs> she breaks um, up with mikey the director of the sad man yes. who she was so, dating yes she was with this she was with the like the happy man this... you might call <laughs> The high high man, <laughs> as opposed to the bye bye man. <laughs> so they break up, and then right after this, we get a scene where basically, um, and I, maybe we didn't mention this overtly, but yeah. So one of the promises that David makes is that he will not ever again say that he loves Meg until she says it to him first. And so we get this scene where they're on a roof again. Like this is like a very movie scene. Mm-hmm where she sort of professes this love and then David like sort of has this difficult moment where he's sort of thinking back to conversations with Harry because now we again we we're bringing back in here the the bargain that he has made where yes he gets like some second thoughts about the wisdom of entering into a relationship with Meg a thing that he previously considered to be like uh, an impossibility basically um and now that he's confronted with the reality of it he's like well do i actually want to drag her into this when she doesn't know that in like however many days i'm gonna die yes uh but then he goes for it anyway yeah <laughs> because as she tells him he's alive yes which i i like that moment echoed in the ending indeed and then we move to yes we find out that Ollie did not, not only did he not give David the show, he didn't give Mira the show either. And in fact, he gave it to Finn, which sparks a very big argument about sort of artistic integrity and Ollie's, um, you know, ulterior motives, obviously. Uh, and then that gets into, again, that, that they resume this conversation from earlier about the subjectivity of art and whether there's, you know, this objectivity or this objective artometer, as Ollie describes it. Mm-hmm. And and again, we learn a little bit more about David and like the collapse of this relationship with his former patron, which he clearly viewed as like a, a sort of patron, strictly patron relationship. But Ollie indicates that uh, Donaldson viewed much more personally and describes David as like a son to him. Um which obviously was not really a level at which 
David felt like he was connecting. So when he gave this interview to him, he was just like hanging on to his artistic integrity. But from Donaldson's point of view, from from Ollie's point of view, um, it's basically like a betrayal of someone who has shown a lot of generosity to to David and and considers him uh, a very dear friend. Yes, this sort of gets into this sort of like central conceit or sort of the central challenge to David's viewpoint where like like the the idea of the platonic artist kind of falls apart when you're putting art above like other human beings and like it's like I don't care about other people's feelings because all I care about is my art like I don't care about xyz like it yeah it's just you can't it's hard to be a platonic artist because it's hard to be a person who has no other like who has no no effect on other people and no other people affecting you yeah and and it kind of also they he he makes this revelation spinning right out of david's declaration that there is such a thing as absolutes um that that objectivity basically is possible and then Ollie immediately not not in direct response to that but we're presented with this situation which David has been viewing in absolute terms that with Ollie's perspective we realize is actually quite a bit more nuanced than what we've been presented with previously um and and that in fact David is being very subjective about it to an extent by assuming that that it's an absolute and that his point of view is um is a complete picture of what happened when in fact it's really not. Yeah. Which is something we see, I think quite a few times where like we sort of see like David sees himself as this very like uncompromised sort of individual. And then once we get insight from another person, we sort of see that things are much more, you know, that there's multiple sides to the story. It's not just black and white, but there's a sort of blue wash over the whole thing as well. Well, certainly David's feeling blue. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, mine was bad. <laughs> the bl- the blue man. Um, yeah, I th- I think that it's this is the point in the book where we start to see his commitment to absolutes as less like uh, a sign of artistic integrity and more of like a personal failing. Yes, a personality defect certainly. Um, so yes, he and Ollie have this friend breakup. Um, and then we get into sort of the, the first inklings or revealing of Meg's sort of manic depressive nature where she sort of has this episode. Sam tries to kick David out and says that she needs her real friends. Yes, which, which is a, a great roast. Um, and then, well, <laughs> and then like this is another this is another time when you sort of bump up against the way the story is structured because it starts with David being like, oh, like, this isn't about me. And like hair, uh, uncle happy shows up, I assume in a vision. Um, and just sort of like, well, like now you have an easy out. Like you were already apprehensive about this because you're going to die. Uh, so like maybe you should just take this opportunity and just walk away. And David sort of is like, Oh, like this isn't about me. Like this is something that is about Meg's life and like has happened before. And like, he is not the root cause of this, or, like really has anything to do with it. But then it's like, well, it kind of is about David because <laughs> Meg told her or told him, like, don't let me push you away. And so this is about like now David has to sort of like prove his love and yeah, 
see if he really is the kind of guy who can keep his promises. Yes. Um, and like, yeah, see, like this, this scene is a little tough for me. Like, and maybe it's the sort of like everything will be all right sort of sentiment, which is like, you know, not, not a negative sentiment, certainly Mm -hmm. like not, not something that you would say is wrong to think, but it is like, it, it lacks a little bit of nuance. Yeah. I appreciate that there's like a bit more resistance to this this whole scene really uh in the form of sam voicing objections about like it's not it's not cute that she doesn't take her meds (laughs) it's like dangerous and selfish um but but yeah in the initial scene yeah it's a little it's a little tough yeah and and i think again it's it's one of those things where like there is there's more nuance to it maybe but we don't exactly like it's not we don't see it exactly because like I do think it's sort of implied by Sam by other characters that it's like well like you're latching on to her because like there is something about this that like attracts you then like these sort of episodes and then because like there's this part where like you know she's in sort of a manic phase this is later in the book but and then Sam is like you know like she's being kind of wild <laughs> and yeah. David is like oh but I love this side of her right and so that's sort of like not maybe codependent isn't the right word exactly, but sort of like he, there's something about this that appeals to him that I think like, it's like is implied is not an entirely healthy situation. Yeah. It's the, it's the same. It's the, like you're alive to him. She seems like more alive than, than anybody else when she's in like the manic phase of the cycle. Yeah. And I think that if like, you know, if that, became sort of like more integrated into the story and the themes then i think it would be a lot easier to be like yeah like this is a very nuanced sort of look at things but the fact that it it never really gets beyond that i feel like Mm -hmm. like we sort of we get to that and there's sort of these implications that there's something you know a little less positive about the relationship then maybe it seems from David's perspective. But in in the end, I think it is like, well, like their relationship is good. Yeah, I think there's like a lot of things going on in the book. Uh, I think I would say too many things. Uh, maybe, yeah. To, to the detriment to the book at times. And I do think that like there's way too much going on for the relationship to be like have a, have an additional complication like that there's probably too much going on for it to even really like engage with the whole mental health conversation and and as a result yeah we kind of have it left more with like some suggestions about places that could have been explored further but just sort of aren't and i think there's a few not that everything has to be like fleshed out and explored i think it's it's it can still be good storytelling to communicate sort of everything you need to know um through through those sorts of implications but um it it does feel like there's a lot of interesting ideas that aren't as explored as they could have been yes exactly um and i think that's sort of like like this is a very long comic like it's what like 500 pages or it's you know pretty much 400 pages for sure um and yet we still have parts like this like pretty much this whole chapter a lot of it is told in like sort of like not montage exactly but like you know we we move through time more quickly than we have been previously yeah 
Um, so we're, we're sort of seeing like different pictures, like David is like having trouble with his art. Um, obviously, you know, like he's been sort of stonewalled again with this Ollie business. Um, he does this thing where he sort of walks in and screws with, um, Finn's art, which is the, D- the, D- the aforementioned DJ Lance photos. And he sort of like rearranges them to look all crazy. And then the shadows on the wall, like project this george washington face because it's like dollar dollar bill y'all yes because and yes he also overhears finn talking because finn is you know this rich kid whose dad is supporting him while he does his art and then like you know he hears him talking about ollie and making fun of him and stuff and so he sort of does this as vengeance yeah um and then another thing so another thing that's sort of alluded to so this is all sort of told through a conversation with harry uh, Happy, sorry, and then Uncle Stanley, <laughs> Uncle Stanley Hefner, <laughs> and one of the things that gets sort of obliquely referenced here is that there's is that he can't reveal what's going on to Meg, or he will have to pay some kind of penalty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> A mysterious and penalty. Do we do we want to talk about this right now? <laughs> because I think it's kind of insane. Um, because <laughs> go go on. Yeah, we'll talk about it. Go on. So basically, what gets revealed like uh, a little later when he finally, you know, because obviously, like he's going to tell her eventually. I feel like that's sort of almost a given. Um, and it's revealed that it, in order to reveal his, his this information to Meg, he must pay a terrible price. His life will be shortened by three days. <laughs> yeah. Um, considering the like fervor with which at the beginning he says he, he'll trade his life for his art almost like without question, without even hesitation. The fact that now all of a sudden those three days are the difference maker. I, yeah, three out of 200 to me just seems like. And it's, at this point we're at like probably like 100 days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, like it's not like uh, I'm gonna tell you and and now like drop dead instantly because that's the way it was. But like, yeah, like I don't I don't think the amount of effort that you would have to go through to conceal this from someone is anywhere close to worth like the three. Like you could just give up three days and then like save that time, <laughs> like not having to hide everything you do from your yeah, girlfriend. Yeah. Like, yeah. Cause he says like they, when they're talking about it at some point, he says like, it's not worth it. Not even close without like, they haven't told you what it is yet. And I was like, Oh, would he like lose his powers? Like, what's the deal? Um, yeah. Yeah. And the, the, I had like, is he saying that he wouldn't have made the deal if the original deal had been, you will live for, 197 days <laughs> and get a girlfriend and, yeah and also you can tell whoever you want like that's basically maybe it's, per, maybe it's per person maybe but yeah yeah i mean i think if he had been presented with the original deal as you get your your fantastic sculpting powers you have 197 days to live or even 195 days to live let's make it nice and round you have 195 days to live and you can only tell one person he still would <laughs> yeah. have done it <laughs> like yes, it's exactly. clear it's clear from how fervently he affirms that he wants to take the deal both times that it's presented to him that he still would have done it if those were the conditions exactly 
but but it's kind of like we're at the point of the book where it starts to move more towards a theme of sort of like every second counts like relish every moment but it's there i don't feel like at this point it makes sense to have david's perspective have shifted from uh like i'll trade the rest of my life less 200 days for the ability to make art the way i want to to three days is too much of a price like i can't lose three days yeah so she because like and it sort of makes sense because he's already wasted so much time like it seems like like you know he's been working he spends you know six weeks working on the things to show the art critics which is a failure and which he then loses yes he spends x weeks working on the uh project for ollie which turns out to be a failure and so it does make sense maybe that he is sort of like well, like i need to maximize my time here because i've already wasted so much time but again it, it doesn't seem like a like even if it was like two weeks i'd be like "Ooh, that's rough like you're lopping off a big chunk yeah there. like two two weeks is getting to the point where you have to think about it a little bit more but yeah. three days yeah, I just don't I just don't buy it based on what how we've seen his sort of attitude towards his time up to this point. Even even as he feels like the strain of like I'm running out of time, it still doesn't feel like 3 days at this point is like as big of a deal, let alone at the like at the outset. Like if he had told someone at the outset, it seems like it wouldn't have been a big deal. Yeah. Um and then so then we move on to the the scene where uh, we learn that he's a fragile virgin <laughs> yes the scene is basically about how david is a virgin which again is insane um so we first sort of get the reveal that they have not had sex yet um and i don't think it's it they've been probably dating for what like a month at this point it's unclear the scale of time can feel a little weird because they sort of got together around hanukkah uh-huh. which would have been in December. Yeah. And then, you know, like we, we go through New Year's. And so I think we're sort of meant to be in like around January at this point. So they haven't been dating for that long. But it does seem weird that like an adult relationship, like between two people who are like self-professed, not very religious, or like have any other kind of things that would, you know, lead them to make that decision on their own yeah it does seem weird yeah that like they, snow's like... snow's still on the ground it's not really clear i guess how long she's been out of her like depressive phase that's true and and she does but and she does say like well like you've waited so long yeah and so i think it yeah it's definitely implied that it's been a while <laughs> for him certainly <laughs> yes but then so then we discover that in my opinion, extremely improbably, he is a virgin. And again, like this is such a weird reveal that I that it, that's what like leads me to have to wonder like is this <laughs> autobiographical? Because as he says, like he's had serious relationships, he's had three girlfriends, he's twenty six years old, he has been intimate with women. Allegedly, I th- I thought we were kind of led to believe that like oh right he says he says we did intimate things yes i think he's sort of saying like like we didn't have sex but you know like we did but he is he's kind of like denying it though she because she like realizes and he's like oh no uh, it's not what you think i've done intimate things yes (laughs) 
uh meg professes that it explains so much which i wouldn't say that it explains so much so much as uh, it definitely tracks yeah he has virgin energy for sure uh and that segues almost immediate like he he has some artistic frustration for a page and a half and then segues into uh their first intimate encounter Yes, they do some lovemaking. Um, so I think maybe you'll you'll know where I'm going this when I say this. There's a there's a real tough line here. Uh, so, oh, oh, yes. I... <laughs> especially coming from the mouth of a woman, I was like, no woman has ever ever said yeah, this. Yeah, this her is life. like turkey time like, gobble a, gobble. Yes, <laughs> exactly. It is turkey time, and like even as a joke, this is not okay. Um, so basically, the way this is set up is that. Um, that uh, Meg calls David and says like there's a plumbing emergency in the downstairs yeah. apartment and that he needs to like come and fix it and he gets there only to realize that like the downstairs neighbors are out of the house um, there's candles everywhere yes and so he has sort of been entrapped and it's not into a honeypot Hanukkah. yeah exactly there's more than eight there's, <laughs> there are a lot of candles there are an insane number of candles um and yes and so that culminates in they end up in the bedroom and david says there isn't really a (laughs) david says there isn't really a plumbing emergency (laughs) is there which prompts meg to laugh and reply oh yes there is cue sex scene That is disgusting. (laughs) Like, even... I don't think even a man would say that in, like, an an attempt to be sex. And it's, like, obviously, it's, like, obviously, she's being a little bit, like... She's being silly. She's having a little fun. But also, like, there there obviously is, like, it's, you know, like... (laughs) Her intent is not to, like, deflate the whole situation. It's just like, I'm going to be a little funny, and then we're going to do the thing. Oh, no. It's, like, framed as, like, a sexy line. Yes. And, like, you know, not, not like, sort of an overtly sexy line where, like, it's, like, there's no humor in it at all. But definitely, like, this is hot. Right. <laughs> and we like this. Yeah. Which I think is just, like, so improbable. Awuga, awuga, etc. for plumbing emergencies. Yes, there's some bazongers. Um, da- uh, David pulls a total Lonely Island. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just had sex? Uh, well, kind of. Insofar as he jimps. Uh-huh. <laughs> Dick in a box? <laughs> Are you in, you're intentionally? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, yes, they are revealed to uh, just be animals. There's some disgusting description of uh, semen as little buddies. And the, yes, that's sort of what I'm talking about. Where it's like, you know, it's like, I'm having a little fun here. Anyway, so yes, eventually, you know, they, they get the job done. Yeah. Uh, Uncle Stanley roasts him about it the next morning uncaffy um and yes and so then we get into it's like now we get into the real comic well yeah and and also like he enters his manic phase kind of it's true 
the like the face that he's making when he tells uh uncle harry about his like what he's been doing or what he's planning to do is crazy yes definitely um and yes so this this is sort of what makes up like i guess you would say like the third act like maybe like the fourth out of five acts of the comic which is that david begins this new project where because he has sort of been stonewalled at every turn by it's time for him to be crazy <laughs> yes it is really like man the one the the one he does that's like across from the city corp building yeah <laughs> like the guy where, being impaled by the pillar yes that's mega banksy um but yeah so he he takes to the streets he sort of makes this guerrilla art he rearranges his own face for security cameras yeah, which is insane crazy. to think about like oh you can manipulate things inside people's bodies like that's a wild <laughs> element this, of your ability a... that like we haven't really talked about like what else can you do with that? Um, he stretches dick out. I'm just putting that. That's canon. <laughs> I assume that to be true. Certainly he... He gave, he gave a little pull. He impales uh, NYPD cars on penises as part of his uh, street art. So there you have it. But yes, he makes all like... He makes street art that it's like is so insane that I don't like... I don't even know how like you would react to it if you saw it because it's like it's like some of it is like as tall as a skyscraper some of it is like yeah it's like you've deformed like the a townhouse or like a like a row of houses to have eyes on it like they're so improbably like they're they're insane and Um, insane that it's like i wouldn't even like believe i wouldn't even believe that this was real yeah uh uncle harry marvels that he's made page two of the times I feel like this is a front page story. <laughs> yeah. Some of them, certainly. He also says, Google schmoogle, this is the time, which is a good line. But yes, and so then the, the big thing is like, oh, yes, uh, Harry also, Uncle Happy also very directly says, you're getting the crazy eyes again. Good for you. Um, And so, we, you know, we sort of get the sense that, like, it's not entirely clear what, like, the end goal of all this is or what exactly, like, his intention is behind this. Like, even he doesn't know. Yes, exactly. Like, he's just doing it because, like, I guess largely because he wants his work to be seen. Yeah. Um, and then, yes, we sort of get this extended montage sequence that I really like, actually, where, um, you know, we sort of get more of the sense of, like, the impending death, obviously. But, like, so, yeah, that, like, it's, like we're running out of time here or maybe it's a little later yeah no no it's here it, it kind of kicks off with like there's the great shot of him walking down the sidewalk um and like the street has turned into like pages of the calendar and he's standing yes. on like today's date and then ahead of him is like the next like month and a half or two two months total and then the sidewalk drops off into like a cliff on uh, on april 9th yes i almost wish there was there was more of that sort of like um like metaphorical art representation of things yes because that's a really cool image yeah and he he becomes obsessed with this clock that she has and the ticking sound that it makes and that is kind of the recurring motif through the next several pages as he starts to count down the days in his diary and we see yeah the big montage of like he's continuing to do the street art the police are kind of like starting to close in on him he's still feeling not really fulfilled by that the critic who like roasted his uh his gallery showing 
goes on the news to be like as art not important not good (laughs) um and and we continue to see like uh you know his his and also like that the police are closing in yeah his money's running out he's he's kind of like under this pressure from meg and sam and like his friends who are sort of like what exactly are you like doing with yourself like they they feel like he's directionless because they don't understand that he's like on a ticking clock which seems to like contribute to his frustration with his work and his inability to yeah like get anything done yes um there they there's a guy on tv who is detective david smith yes which uh like i i like the conceit considering the whole like make a name for yourself and he's he's already like the other david smith i like the idea that there's another other david smith in the story i feel like the the idea that he was put on this case as like a joke it's <laughs> like <laughs> yes do we really cool. need that like yes we what? later like get hear that explicitly that it's like or is it the, like we the was, like, nypd it thought it would be funny <laughs> yeah it's like it wasn't a joke at first and then it was and then it wasn't again no, it, like it, it was starts a, as a joke it and then started it as a joke yeah and then he was just like well it's turning into a big deal so i'm like still here and i'm still working it um i i it should have just been a coincidence like it <laughs> strains credulity that the nypd would be handing out cases based on like hey one of the suspects in this case is named David Smith. That's your freaking name. Yeah. Um, and yes, and sort of like, sort of everything is not exactly like boiling over or like, you know, going awry, but there's a lot of pressure sort of on all sides. Like his relationship is sort of suffering from this. He's running out of time in like a life sense. He's being hounded by the police. Like all of this stuff is sort of like converging all together. Yeah, it's it's very like unfinished business. He feels like there's so many things that he needs to accomplish still from like he needs to he needs to accomplish whatever he's trying to do with his art. He needs to make sure that Meg is going to be okay. He needs to um yeah, he 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 just feels like there's all these things that he needs to make happen and uh is feeling the strain of like the time ticking by. Yes, which is definitely reflected, like, I mean, like, it's it's one of those things where, like, it's it's a very sort of understanding comics thing where, like, I, at least I found myself, like, you start to read the pages faster, like, you, like, feel... Oh, the, yeah, the, it's, like, time is rushing by, yeah. You and, feel like, that same, like, pressure within the book itself, which is yeah. really cool. And the, like, that last page where he's, like, lying in bed awake, staring at the clock and the ticking, it just, like, gets louder is really cool. And again, very cinematic as well. Like you can see exactly how this would play out uh, on screen. Absolutely. Um, and so, yes, this sort of um, is, it doesn't exactly end, but we sort of segue into this fight that they have because we've sort of seen that like David is very much like not there because he is dealing with all this other stuff in terms of his relationship. Um, and so then what happens is with 24 days left they sort of have this fight and agree to take a month off which i think david sees as like this is a very easy exit um meg goes to shanghai to perform <laughs> to the, do sad the sad man, man. <laughs> um I'm and so a like sad he's man. like scat man yeah because i'm sad i'm sad <laughs> and wasn't he though and he was I'm talking about Michael Jackson here. 
and so yes the the idea is basically being like well i'll like she'll go off we're quote-unquote taking a month off i'll be yeah. dead before and, we and see she'll each be other fine. again yeah and so like this makes things easier yes like she will sort of like be and able to be consoled by yeah, her friends and she'll like, kind she'll of be like she'll her. be able to get over it because the relationship was kind of winding down anyway it's like she'll see it as like well we were gonna break up anyways yes exactly therefore he deserves to be dead <laughs> <laughs> uh but yes he's he's prepared to just spend the rest of his life literally working um and kind of let let meg go yes he has a harry and the hendersons moment where he like after she has left he like sculpts her and then says like i don't need you anymore get out of here will you he, he throws rocks at her until she leaves <laughs> yes exactly um and then there's a scene that's just like it's it's a it's a very like it's a weird moment because he gets like this sort of devilish smile on his face, and then the next panel is like him like he has made these sculptures of nude women who are sort of like caressing him and like enveloping him who he who is also naked. And it's like well, they're all Meg. Yes, they're 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 all Meg or you know like sort of this sculpted form of meg that's like uh-huh. why like why is he smiling in that way like are you, you're suggesting that in the next picture he is sleeping off his sex that he's just had with these sculptures well, is that no i i'm i'm not i'm not implying <laughs> anything i'm asking what the book is meant to be implying. Like, like he's like he has this face that's like oh i just got the most devilish idea and then like <laughs> and then the next one it's like this is incredibly sad like you have sculpted facsimiles of women that you are like sleeping among who are made of yeah. granite. Yeah, I don't yeah, I agree. I don't really get what's clear. I guess he got drunk as well. On that like one one page turn to the next, like what's what's he smiling about that we then turn and yeah, it's just he's a drunk. smile because he's... it seems as though he has a plan and then but then like the next panel's like it doesn't seem like it's like, Oh, I have a good idea. I'll get drunk and like <laughs> and have sex and with fall sculptures. Into a stupor. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and then there's a very funny scene afterwards where Meg is at the door and he is like among these sculptures and has to very quickly yeah, so he like has to clean everything up back into blocks yeah. <laughs> before he can do anything um, but yeah so Meg has returned like she, she sort of gave up um, and then she sort of has this speech that she gives and again this is again we're sort of trying to humanize meg here we're sort of trying to give her some depth we're trying to give her her own arc um which is mainly that like you know she has this carelessness but also like she wants to have kids is her big thing she wants to be a mom um she and then like she has had difficulty with this because of medical things and it turns out oh yeah i guess i didn't make this connection exactly but like the like she has now found out that she is pregnant, which is why she has returned. Um, yes. And then but you didn't, you didn't connect with that. I guess I like, I didn't connect that she, I couldn't connect that she had returned because of that. I thought it was just like, she sort of had like an, I'm not leaving you moment. And also I'm pregnant. Right. Um, but yeah, so they, she reveals this and then she drops. It's basically exactly what uncle Heffy says. Like this sort of image of uh, of his life, the life that they're gonna have together, in which he is not a great artist. Yes, the life that he very explicitly, like, thoroughly rejected earlier, that Uncle Happy sort of paints for him, is the one that yep. he 
refuses here. Well, the one the one that I think this is very impactful to the yeah, I think this is kind of like the emotional sort of climax of the story where he's gone from the place where he was presented this image of life and basically said like I'd rather die than have that be my life and and got what he asked for. And then now after the like as the times end is drawing near, he's presented with that vision again and now it's like all he wants but he's he's already like made his deal to not be able to have it yeah but it's like it's kind of it's kind of like both because it it is very explicit like in her sort of speech it's like well, like we're not we're not giving up on the dream of david like being a great artist and like having everyone acknowledge and respect him like that's still very much a thing that is part of this fantasy but you know, it's going to have this other like sort of domestic element as well. And then we get the line, which I think came up in the interview that I was reading um, and is sort of like the, the log line or sort of like the refutation of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl thing where she says, like, you know, it'll take however long, but you'll climb up until everybody is your name and the sun will rise and set on David Smith. But I, here's the deal. I'm not living in anyone's shadow. OK, the sun's going to rise and set on me, too, buddy. And then it's like, that's that's meant to, I think, be the acknowledgement that it's like, well, like, she's not, she doesn't exist as his prop. Like, she's going to be her own person. But then it's like, her, like, idea of happiness is that, like, she's going to work retail part-time and raise his kid. Like, aren't you an actor? Like, didn't you want to be on Broadway? <laughs> yeah, it does, it does, like eliminate the the like non mother slash like domestic bliss uh part of her wants from the equation completely and not even really like consider them Uh, like yeah maybe it's just not clear exactly what it means when she says that like the sun is gonna rise rise and set on me too other than that like she's demanding that like she's not going to be ignored as part of this equation yeah but it's like i'm not gonna be ignored but also like you're you'll be able to chase your dreams and uh you know i'm good with whatever yeah it's like <laughs> like i guess this is enough now yeah it's like i'm I'm not gonna be ignored but i will just be happy to just be your wife and the mother of your children apparently and maybe that's not exactly what she's saying but that's what it seems like yeah i i do agree with that yeah, I but I, I think for him it is a it is an effective scene where it's like the image the the thing that was missing from the image as like Harry painted it for her is not like the specifics or the details, it's like the reality of the person, so to speak. Like the the person who he he can't imagine a person who it would be worth giving up his art for and now he has someone who he would be willing to give up his art for if he was able to. Yeah, or even just like that the way Harry frames it is sort of like, well, like this is you quitting on your dream. Whereas I think the way that she reframes it is you're going after a different dream. Like there's something that's more important to you now than the art, which seemed right. impossible before. Yeah. But yes. And so then we finally get to the moment where Harry makes his terror or not <laughs> where David makes his terrible choice. Uh, he sacrifices three days 
and tells Meg about everything. Um, it, it is a funny scene <laughs> where she like says, like, I believe you. It's okay. You're not crazy. I believe you. And then he actually like demonstrates his power and she freaks out <laughs> and is like, what? I didn't believe you. <laughs> which is a good bit. Yes. Um, yeah. So he has 12 days left, which I will say, you know, three days on on like day number 200 seems like less of a big deal three days on day 15 like okay now it seems like a tough decision or a tougher decision yeah that's like dude like if you just done this at the beginning like yeah (laughs) yeah i guess like yeah not wasting the time that you have is obviously a huge theme of this book um and it seems like it would have been way less of a waste of his time if he had just told her about it, like, as soon as they got together. Yes, and I, but I think that's also, like, part of the realization, sort of, is that he initially, he feels that he is, like, the, the, the time being wasted is the time that he is not working on his art, whereas now it's sort of framed as the time that he wasted was the time that he, like, was emotionally detached from the people he loves. Um, and so, yes, they sort of get into this um, sort of routine where, as he puts it, half each day we work, half we live. And then so sort of like we have David breaking his promises of accepting handouts. Yes, going to Diagostino's. And she says we'll download a Swedish movie. And he very explicitly says he won't pay for a movie by a Swedish director. So I think that's sort of Maybe a they're going to rent it on Prime yeah, get... or uh, iTunes or something. But then you wouldn't download it, you would just stream it. I guess it would have to be on iTunes. Anyways, um, she gives him Roadhead, which was a scene I did not care for. It's <laughs> like, okay. Like, you had to throw that one in. Uh, it's a very erotic life they're living. Um, yes. The, and then there's some added eroticism where it's like, everyone who slept with Meg is in this room. Like, it's a, some yeah, kind of... Including uh, Sam. Yeah, it's a password. It's like, oh, like, uh, I hate that joke. It's like... In college, I got a lesbian face. <laughs> Although it is very funny that Sam calls her a tourist. Yes, that is funny. And I do like, yeah, the joke is kind of like hackneyed. But the the two panels where he's like, ha ha, Sam, you're the only one. And like <laughs> looking over his shoulder at Marcus, who's like, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, the joke, the joke is kind of lame, but the execution is funny. Yeah, some of the moments like here, like this scene specifically, like, when there, I, I sort of like when it's like writ, drawn in a more cartoony style, and like the emotions are a little more exaggerated in that way. Yeah, um, the eyes bulge insanely out of the head. <laughs> anyways, like and and then yeah, there's there's this other interesting part that sort of stuck out to me, um, which I I was interested. It's not really picked up again, but the idea is like Meg is like, hey, don't put this into the diary. Like it'll be our little secret. And then he's like, mm-hmm. nah, I'm going to write it down anyways. <laughs> yeah, which is, I guess, I guess kind of like preparing the way for the whole idea that is like revealed at the end slash introduced at the beginning that there's one secret he's going to tell her that nobody else knows. And he's not like, she's going to be the only person who knows it. And when she dies, it's gone. Yes. And so then we, we sort of see some more vignettes. We see she sort of goes back to her college town because her professor is passing has is like dying of cancer and then oh yes he he has this sort of like crazy experience where he falls asleep in a cemetery and then wakes up like covered in bugs and like has a freak out that he doesn't want to die 
Yes, the the art in that scene sequence is really cool. Like everything from after they split up until he's like back with her is really cool. Yeah, there's some cool like very like super detailed stuff. Um, where I, I almost wonder if it's like sort of like that like CGI sort of like like the Abraham Lincoln thing where it's like a drawn character and then like some of the background is like CGI. Like the the there's a part where he sort of looks at parking lines. Or like lines in a parking yeah, lot. Yeah, that are like insanely detailed. That are extremely detailed and that's really cool. And then also like some busts, like in the cemetery, there's like busts of people's heads and stuff. Yeah. There's this little vignette where it's, which becomes important later, where uh, there's this protest happening and then Meg is asked to like hold a baby because the a woman is like going to help the people who are protesting and Meg is sort of like tossing the baby up in the air um, as a guy says look to heaven like look to heaven because he's religious and then she says it's all down here which is i think isn't there there's a part like that in zot as well isn't it isn't there where it's sort of just like uh i mean there's that's kind of like a theme throughout zot i would say and then we get this sort of reconciliation with ollie yes very very tragic well yeah they they like revisit memories from uh their their childhood ollie reveals that he knows that david is like the the night vandal <laughs> yes because he know like he he knows that david messed with finn's sculpture and then he also knows that the like it's it's widely sort of agreed or believed that the person that messed with finn's sculpture is the guy who's creating the night art right and and like banksy style that has like insanely inflated the value of finn's sculpture and and it was bought for like $170,000 and they think they could get half a million at auction. Yeah. Um, um, which is a good bit. Finn sets up an insanely convoluted scheme to get <laughs> David's fingerprints and learn oh, where yeah. he is. I forgot about that. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, very sad beat where uh ollie says he can't see him on the weekend but how about next week and they just sort of silently agree that they'll they'll just kind of go along with it and not um yeah not not trouble him with or not yes anything that might or might not be happening and as he's leaving he lets david know that penelope hammer has been trying to get a hold of him for some time Yes, because she actually, or the guy that she sent to this original exhibition at the loft that failed has suddenly excited everyone, or has excited her at least, and she sort of has this event that's like, and then there's there's a point that Penelope says, which feels sort of relevant, just like, where she says like, you know, art can change the world, but that happens very slowly. And I think that that's another idea of this, like, the idea of time, and especially with art, like... You know, Scott talks about the, for the platonic artist, a lot of times their work doesn't get recognized or acknowledged properly until after they die. Um, so that definitely feels like something that he's like commenting on as well. Mm-hmm. And then, yes, yeah, so with three days left, there's this sequence where uh, Uncle Heffy appears. Well, first, he sort first of... he shows Meg uh, this thing that he made to show her where he totally rips off uh, the other artist, Mitra. Oh yeah, that's... <laughs> wow. I didn't. I, yeah, I didn't think of it that way. Where it's like, yes, it's this big ball. So one of the things that uh, that the what's what's her name again? Mitra, right? 
No, that's not right. I think you have Mitra Juhari. Maybe. Um, hold on one second. I'll look here. Wow, I turned Amira. the page perfectly. There you Amira go. It's Baki. one letter off. Yeah, sure. Um, yes. So Mira, her art has these little elements that where it's like that no one will ever see. That are sort of like the insides of these little boxes that she makes, um, and she, which is sort of like you know, it's it's a very artist thing where it's like this is just for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so <laughs> yes, David does rip her off a little by creating this like sort of intertwined. It's basically like a rubber band ball. Um, yeah, but it's made out of those five materials that he he had like brought the bricks and made women out of and had sex with <laughs> <laughs> right uh, yes, and so then they're like off before he started sculpting that thing <laughs> be, hey you could say that he uh he quite literally got his rocks oh, off you could say there's a little piece of him in there uh <laughs> anyways um, yes and so yes like like you said he is kind of ripping her off where is is that explicitly stated or is that just thing you know i don't think it is explicitly stated i do think it's kind of funny that he sort of rips her off and meg is like kind of lukewarm on it she's like okay cool yeah that that's the thing it's like this it's funny because like this is like he is like this is it like this is my masterpiece and then like that's like very quickly shot down. It's like this isn't your masterpiece. Come on, <laughs> like this is just like it's very like intricate and cool. Mm-hmm. And I guess like maybe even then, like you could say it's like this is sort of like the technical pinnacle. Like because like obviously like, like no one could ever possibly make this, mm-hmm. like as a human. But you know, like what is it worth exactly? Um, yes, but then like I said, Uncle Heffy shows up. Uh, he, he talks about how he knows Meg because she was the girl in the hat because she wore a lot of hats <laughs> and she worked at a movie theater that Uncle Heffy went to before, like after his wife died. But then as it turns out, that story was not true because he's never been to that theater as he reveals while they play their chess game. My eyes are very wide right now. <laughs> yes, because... I have an appointment with her in 10 minutes at 53rd and 9th. Excelsior! <laughs> Here's to you, true dead guy. <laughs> um, oh, and then also, like, we get we get a little bit of the thematic resonance here where it's, like, sort of the idea that's, like, immortality is less about, you know, because a lot of this is sort of about the, the very classic idea of, like, you die two deaths. I don't know why I'm doing this voice, but, like, <laughs> Once when you die, and once when someone speaks your name for the last time. And it's like, which is, yeah, sort of the idea of immortality or like being remembered as is set out in this book. Whereas David has sort of come to this realization that all of humanity is connected. And so like, just by sort of like being alive and touching other people's lives, that that is sort of the way that you make your mark on the world. And which is then very much cut off by this discovery um, and then the same, like, just as this is happening as well. So, yes, everything sort of comes to a head here. Um, the police show up and are chasing him. Um, David is running to stop this, only to find that he is too late. Meg was hit by, what, a car or a UPS truck while riding her bike. Yeah. Because she's very careless and she always rides too fast. Um, rude thing to say to someone that just died. <laughs> Yes, Uncle Heffy is there. He takes her away. 
and he is again he he makes his escape by like tunneling through the concrete not unlike well i won't spoil next week actually but not unlike someone else we know (laughs) a certain (laughs) waker that's a little tease for next week um but yes and so he he tunnels into the sewers and leaves her corpse there. Yes. Uh, Uncle Uncle Heffy appears one last time to do his best, uh, like, HAL 9000. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry, like, Dave. Yes, Harry he is, is gone. He is losing his humanity because everyone who was connected to Uncle Heffy is now, like, dying, including David himself very soon. Yes, he dissolves uh, into nothingness, leaving David alone with uh, with meg's exquisite corpse yes and this this is another thing that like you killed her off so like you're really leaning hard into this manic pixie dream girl thing and do you think this is obviously a very subjective it's like did, did she really need to die to like sort of hammer this home uh yeah good good question um like, I almost think that what we see at the end would be more impactful if she, like, bore witness to it. Right. But but would he have done it if she didn't die? I, I, I mean, I guess you can easily get him there and make it less, uh, like, pure grief thing and, and a little bit more, like, I know I'm dying now and I'm going to quietly step out and leave, like, this monument to you. And that, and that's also just like, oh, like she had to die so he could get inspired to make his great. Yeah, piece of that's art. Like, like a classic women in refrigerators thing. I read an interview with him where he's talked about this specifically uh, with the comics journal, uh, which as a the the review they published was a little bit uh, lukewarm on it. I'm just scrolling through to see if I can find it. Um, and now I'll continue while you look for that. Please um, do. Yeah, so basically he sort of runs off. He It's in, like, this, like, torrential downpour, and he climbs up this, like, unfinished building. He goes full um, King Kong. He does go full King Kong. He climbs to the top of this building and, like, begins to sculpt with this massive, like, bunches of, like, steel beams and stuff. Um, and the police have again arrived. Uh, the other David Smith is here, which is a, a good joke. Um, he... The other David's like David says, "Oh, you're the other David Smith," and then the David Smith, who is a cop, says, "That's what my wife calls you," <laughs> which is funny. Yeah. Um, yes, like you said, like you mentioned before, we found out that when Oliver, when Ollie visited David, Finn followed him and got David's fingerprints from a wine glass, matching him to the handprints on the bridge, which is like <laughs> really. You found those and you connected them back to the guy who was making art. Like, you don't know what his, like, you don't know that he has supernatural powers. Like, why do you think that that's a thing? I mean, I feel like, again, this is why I was like, I think this is probably a front page news story. But I feel like that's the only explanation, especially after the point where they've, like, seen him in action several times or, like, chased him off midway through. Like, yeah, I guess so. it's clear that whatever he's doing, you know, is not it's, humanly possible. Yeah. Um, Okay, I found the thing I was looking for. So this is an interview, like I said, with Tasha Robinson of the Comics Journal. uh, And she asks, 
uh, or I guess more observes. Meg's death has such a familiar resonance for comics. In mainstream superhero comics, there's such an awareness and dubiousness at this point. Anytime you have a woman dying in a story solely to give a man a big emotional moment, no matter how well it's contextualized or written, uh, at the, it feels at this point like it's playing to a trope. And Scott's response is, that was on my radar from the beginning. The only problem is I was writing a story about a man who kept losing the people he loved. And the loss of the people he loved was the entryway into the simple fact that everybody dies. And the story has to come back to square one before it's done. There's really no avoiding it. I couldn't see a way at all for the story uh, to make any sense at all without that ending. I still don't. He has to face down death in its purest form. He's given the opportunity to turn away from that toward the end of the story. All his musings about the continuity of life are his opportunity to turn away from it, as we all do. Yeah, I wonder, like, maybe again like we're sort of getting into like rewriting the book a little bit here but it's like would it make sense to maybe like sort of part way through like you have harry come back and like like he's like i'm gonna do you a favor because i like you like you can stop all this now and like turn away and like you'll lose your powers but you won't die like i'll basically i'll give you like a take back would that make sense or is it just like too or maybe like is it just too clear that he would accept it like if she was still alive yeah like so like maybe like it's like you're at like the two week point or whatever like the point at which you know he's already started to do this and they've sort of like started to live their life like do their live their life thing and he comes to him and is like or that's like okay like like i'll do you a favor we can sort of call off the deal you'll lose your powers and like you'll never like i can tell you like you'll never be a great artist or we can continue. Um, yeah, I think I think at this point it's pretty clear that he would take it. Um, it might be different if like, like if he had if he had had like a proper falling out with Meg, but achieved like the success that he was after, or something like that. To to have the choice be like, you can you can I'll, well, we can like do a takes these backsies you'll lose your powers you'll never be able to create like your great art again but you'll have enough time to like maybe make it right yeah I, I think i think this gets back to what i was talking about earlier the idea that like the reason that it ended up this way is because like you've put yourself in this box like by constructing the story in this way like he said like he says exactly that in the quote like he made a story about like a man who was like going through these things and like sort of like has like this central male figure. And so it's going to end up in this way that like a lot of stories do where this woman dies, like to sort of serve his like emotional climax. And it's like, if you can't think of like, if there's no other way to resolve the story, I think that's a, maybe not a problem, but a flaw with, the story itself rather than like like it if if you constructed your plot so that there's no other way to get around that then that's maybe like part of the problem yeah i i think i agree with scott insofar as like it's a major sort of theme of the story that uh or like motif of the story that the people who are close to david die because everyone dies because you know this it's a story about death to an extent yeah, for sure. And I feel like if it's now suddenly a rule, like it, it to me, it feels like to change that story because 
there's a, a woman in it and her death has an emotional impact on the male lead character. What you're basically saying at that point is that because like fridging female characters was a trope, you're now not allowed to have a female character die in a story where a male character is like the focus character because that yeah, will affect but... him emotionally and you're playing into the trope. But it's just so like I, I I don't think it's just that like it's so it seems so direct like she dies like as a to sort of like create this distress in him that sort of like leads to the emotional climax of the story and then spoilers like the end of the story is basically like he is like tributing her in this way like it's so it's I, I think it's I think it's more than just like this sort of evokes a trope. I think this is firmly like entrenched within the trope. And I think that he is cognizant of that, which is why he sort of tries to get away, like push away, push back on it in a lot of like, by giving more depth to the character, because I think he realized like, I can't get away from this story. Like, because like this is the way I've constructed the story. Therefore I need to do something that's going to like, not make it a complete a complete like betrayal of the character right i don't know i guess i guess it's it's just a question of like if if uh i guess like if they flipped the roles like if if meg was the tortured artist and um and david was like the the manic pixie dream boy and he died would it i don't know yeah but it's like is that like I don't think that that's a a lot better. (laughs) Right. But it is also like, I think that's also like. Or, or like, what if the story had been about like discovering that like joie de vivre through his friendship with Ollie and then Ollie died? Like, yeah, that, that would be, I think, I think that would, well, maybe I just don't, I just don't see that as like functionally different from what happens. No, I guess not. And it's like, I do like this comic. So it's hard for me to like really say like, this shouldn't have happened or like this was a wrong thing to do it's just like like i said you you sort of put yourself in this box maybe by like creating a book that's about a male character who falls in love with a girl and sort and you know by framing her in this way like by framing her as like the impetus for him to like because like it's not just about her dying it's about how like it's like you inspired me to realize that life is worth living like you saved my life it's like it's so that thing like garden state or whatever right yeah it's i mean i'm not gonna say that it's not cliche i just do feel like there's an extent to which like what what started out as like a cogent um critique of the way that uh female characters are handled in superhero comics has started to turn into a thing where it's like you're not allowed to introduce a female character if they're gonna die and it's like well uh, i i don't think like i think that's a reaction too far in the other direction like i yeah so I you're think saying the feminists have gone too far the, the feminists have gone too far and like I feel like David up on this tower and the PC police have sniper's position. <laughs> just, just waiting to fire unprompted. Um, no, I, obviously I don't think that the feminists have gone too far, but... Um, there is, there's some nuance, certainly. Yeah, and... I, I just think that, yeah, it is possible to overcorrect. I think that telling stories where death is a factor 
you know it, yeah the <laughs> fact that it, the fact that it is like intrinsically a story about death is a good point like yeah you can't you can't get away from that yeah and like there are emotional consequences to death like it would be way worse if he had no response <laughs> it's, it's like twist ending he's a sociopath yeah <laughs> like he was manipulating her all along and doesn't care that she's dead yeah i guess that this part is more a sort of side effect of the fact that like you made a story about a guy who like has this kind of relationship with a girl and like not even like has that kind of relationship but like has a relationship that is portrayed in that very sort of stock twee way right where this the, the story is all about like the way that their relationship changes her yeah or the, that way their relationship changes him have you have you read why the last man I've read parts of it, not okay. enough to really remember a lot. Well, we'll uh, we'll revisit this conversation at some point uh, there, and I'll be interested to see what your take on it is when that becomes relevant when we read through that. But um, spoilers, BKV coming up next. Um, oh. Sorry, sorry to steal <laughs> wow, your sunshine. Cut that, cut that out. Steal <laughs> your sunshine, where you led. <laughs> yes. But yeah, we'll we'll come back and talk about it more there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's he's in the rain, he's sculpting, um, and then there's a there's a there's a good bit where sort of like the rain is fading, the sun is coming up, and like the guy's like, well, like they're gonna shoot him, aren't they? And I'm like, why are they gonna shoot him? I guess because he's King Kong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't really get that either. Like. They're gonna they're gonna shoot like him defacing public property with like I his mean, incredible like superhuman powers that like will change life as we know it. Like you wanna kill him? <laughs> yeah, they want they wanna do the autopsy. But yes, there there's a good bit where the other David Smith, who we haven't mentioned yet, is black, um makes a joke about because he's the Eddie the cop talks about how like the sniper's gonna take him out. And David Smith says, Right, Eddie, the NYPD loves shooting white celebrities. Uh, which is a good joke, except as he, as Eddie, right, or not Eddie, as David Smith, the other David Smith, rightly points out, like, he's still in a precarious situation, and eventually, as it happens, someone does take the shot, whether, and we never really get an explanation, an exploration of that as to why that happened or how it happened, but he gets shot, he starts to fall, which is, um, yeah, I, I really like the way this is portrayed. It's sort of like like he's just on the girder working, and then you see a very faint bang. He's sort of working in fog. It's very which subtle. I didn't in a see cool it, way. it. Like the I didn't realize that it was there until I got to the part where it was like we all heard someone shoot, and I was like, I didn't hear anybody shoot. <laughs> I had to go back and be like, who shot? <laughs> Who's up there? Uh, but yes, and so then we get a very long sequence of him falling, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and and like gets slower as the panels go on. Yes, well, specifically and, and like larger. Yes, specifically right as he is about to hit the ground, it becomes full page splashes where every and it, it slows down even more. Where like every page is like he's moved like half one an inch. like yeah one body length and then yeah and then yes it's sort of like he's moving extremely slowly. It's zooming in and then there's this awesome (laughs) part um where in this like as he so as we see him like 
just about to hit the ground and I assume his head will pop like a melon. <laughs> well, I mean, we see the results. Yeah, I wasn't exactly sure to take of that, but yes, he, he does get he does get uh, exploded. Um, but that like we slowly zoom in and we see all of these like tons and tons and tons of little portraits from his life, which slowly grow over time. Yes. And like we weird see... that one of the first thing he remembers is breastfeeding. <laughs> <laughs> tough tough it's day. Something, it's something you... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm about to hit the ground. What the? No. <laughs> it's, it's not something. Is it? Is it all of his memories or is it like just death is showing his life? I guess that's not. No, entirely, but anyway, I, it's like he. Yeah, it's like he relives his life in an instant. So I don't yes, think. And I, guess I don't like, think he, with his adult brain, is like I'm about to hit the ground and my head will pop like a melon. And now time to remember breastfeeding. <laughs> yeah, and I guess the idea is that like as time goes on, the me- the number of memories increase. So like when he's like a very little baby, there's like ten pictures, which are like some which are just like people looking at him yeah like, like his goo goo toy, Gaga toy. <laughs> yeah and then as time goes on the number of memories he has increases as like you know his, yeah. as he gets older yeah um and so they yeah, eventually we get into like these big two-page spreads um my personal favorite is the childhood one where it's like it's him and ollie reading comics at the lunch table yep, because every character in comics reads comics yep <laughs> um like it's him like getting easter eggs but then it's also like He's playing PS2. He's watching Princess Mononoke. He's, he's watching, watching his mom and Lord dad make out. <laughs> like, he sees Gollum. He sees Harry Potter. Um, he's playing a DS in one of them. Oh, I, th- I thought he was playing... Um, what was the, like, one between the regular, like, brick the Game Advance? Boy Advance SP? Yeah. It looks like a Game Boy Advance SP to me, no I way. gotta say. There's two screens, bro. Oh, yeah, you're right. There's two screens. There's two screens. All right, he's um, playing the world's squarest DS. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that square. Anyways, that's a discussion for another time. Um, yes, and so I I really like this sequence. Like, there's so much detail to it. And, like, you know, some of it is stuff we've heard about or stuff that, you know, we've we've seen directly in flashbacks. And then other parts are just, you know, snippets of, like, different life experiences that we haven't seen, like, maybe a little more mundane. Um, which gradually turns into, and then finally we get to this sort of last memory. And again, like this is another part where I can see so clearly how it would work as a movie, and it seems so cool. Um, and so we finally cut to this last scene where David is talking to Meg a few days before, or like I guess like almost right before this whole thing happens where David is talking about this dream where he is sort of like sees his whole family as like this storage unit that's like buried in junk. Um, and then, yes, Meg sort of gives him this speech about living life to the fullest and embracing the mm-hmm. possibility of death. Um, and then we cut back to what we saw at the beginning of the comic, which is David whispering this secret to Meg that only the two of them will ever know basically mm-hmm. uh and then we and the secret to... is in a few days my head is gonna pop like a <laughs> <laughs> yeah then we cut to david and his head is popping like and what i what i thought might have happened was like almost that like his power manifested and like created like 
a divot in the concrete. I, I also thought that might happen that like the second his like head touched the ground, it would like catch him or something. But no, his uh He does die for sure. But I don't I don't know if that's meant to be that his head popped like a melon or if <laughs> No, it's... I do I do think that that is meant to be like his head is now ground beef. <laughs> <laughs> like that's his brain that we're seeing. Yes, and so then and then finally as the morning dawns and like everyone gets a proper look, we see that David's sculpture is this massive skyscraper sized sculpture of meg like nude and it's basically a sort of a recreation of her tossing this baby in the air in the scene we saw earlier which i guess wikipedia describes it as like an enormous statue of meg and their unborn child which i think is like it's implied i would say i think that is implied but also uh in that same interview that i was talking about uh mcleod does explicitly say that it's it's a callback to yes it's cer- it's certainly un- unquestionably a callback to that scene like she's doing this it's like it's the same pose and we see in that scene like david sort of takes note of it and so it's not unreasonable it's definitely a callback to that but it could i think it's it's both yes and so then the fight we end it with david smith who <laughs> it's been reported on cnn that detective <laughs> yes. david smith is the one who <laughs> they, fell to his death <laughs> they somehow misreported that david's that detective david smith is the one that died and then we end with david smith's wife saying you're alive which the i think is end which i think is nice finn finn indeed Freaking um, and then, oh indeed <laughs> And then, yes, we get this little epilogue from Scott, which I really like, um, which is talking about how, you know, Ivy is the girl in the hat. She inspired the character of Meg. He was, you know, secretly in love with her for seven years, he says. Well, you skip the part where he thanks DJ Lance Rock for being an awesome entertainer. (laughs) (laughs) My protagonist might not like the sculptor's appropriating Lance's face, but I'm sure he likes Lance's (laughs) artistry just fine. (laughs) good bit Uh, Um, very good bit yes and and the fact that scott mcleod says he was secretly in love with ivy for seven years is what makes me think that the virgin part is autobiographical (laughs) anyways i'm sorry i'm sorry scott since you're listening to this i don't i'm not meaning to impugn you in any way we all have different life experiences and there's nothing wrong with losing your virginity at any time for example 26 that we were all virgins once (laughs) yes and we will all be again. <laughs> Certainly. But yes, there's a there's like a brief history of like death in Ivy's family as well, where it's revealed that the name Meg was taken from her uh her uh infant sister who died shortly after being born. Ivy's yeah. sister. Which I liked a lot. Yes, very touching. And then the last image in the book is the clock. Uh, which symbolized for David the relentless passage of time. Yes, it's it's the death that awaits us all. Indeed. Uh, and that's that. That's uh, it's the last of the major works of Scott McCloud. So it it sounds like we're we're sort of in the same place as this. I think maybe I liked it a little more than you did. I think you did. Yeah. I I t- I certainly like it. I think it's uh, impactful and and. Uh, a tour de force I, I yeah i it's it's good and i like it i wouldn't say it's uh, spoiler alert but it's not my favorite thing of his um 
I was also really interested, like kind of looking back at the like overall reception of it because it seems like at the time, well, slash like I remember, like I was I was reading comics, I was following the scene when this came out. It came out to like much much aplomb and acclaim, and like we already talked a little bit about, like he went on like a whole press tour to like promote it and gave a bunch of interviews and at like mainstream publications like it wasn't he wasn't just like doing the comics circuit yeah i guess because he is like sort of this intellectualist and is sort of like the serious comic book guy that that automatically sort of conferred this level of importance like i said like it's like a neil gaiman thing where like it, it just naturally sort of leads to a larger mainstream media attention than you might otherwise see from a comic like this yeah and so it seemed at the time like at the time of its release people were very positive about it i read a lot of positive reviews i read some things that described it as his magnum opus um like people were very high on it and it came out it came out in february and like i saw a lot of reviews that were like early contender for like comic of the year basically um but then I went to look at like the end of year lists from like a bunch of different places and it's not really well represented. Like it's on Vulture's like top however many graphic novels of 2015. I think it was on GQ's as well, which I did, <laughs> did not realize that GQ did a best graphic novels <laughs> of the year list. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh but I think those were the only two and like not even really honorable mentions and certainly not from like like the nerd sites or the the like comic specific sites like nothing for comics journal nothing from comics beat nothing from gizmodo um and even even other like npr no washington post no um yeah i I looked at a bunch a bunch of lists and it's not really well represented and i feel like now like five years removed six years almost removed um it's like people people think of it fondly but it's not talked about as much as even like zot i would say like i see more discourse now about zot than i do about the sculptor yes or or at at least more people who bring it up like if someone's looking for like a recommendation more people will recommend zot than the sculptor yeah and i think maybe part of that i mean like again spoilers but like i don't think i'd put it above zot but um, I think that it's also, like, because Zot was so, like, revolutionary for its time, maybe, like, it gets a little bit more of that, like, historical importance conferred upon it. Yeah, yeah, maybe. And, like, the fact that it's working in superheroes and, and is able to do a bit more genre play with a genre that people are, like, quite intimately familiar with, whereas this is, like kind of a heady meditation on like life and death and art <laughs> that yes i think i do think this definitely i like it more or you know like i think i would have liked it less if i just read this cold rather than right. having it be like coming from like a place that i sort of understand in terms of the kind of things that scott has been writing on for so long and then also having read zot like understanding sort of his style in that way, like the things he sort of shoots for, because I do think a big part of his fictional writing is that like he shoots for those sort of like emotional, like big ideas about life and like 
sort of like humanist themes. Right. But uh, we have now completed his, you know, we certainly haven't touched the full depths of what Scott McCloud has to offer, but I think we've no. hit upon, uh, we'll call it a greatest hit. Yeah, certainly. His All his all his major works uh, represented. Um, just, just before we totally move on, I wanted to touch as well on the awards scene. Uh, no nominations for the book or for Scott, which I did find surprising. Um, nothing, nothing whatsoever. The two, uh, big categories that you might have expected to see a nomination for, uh, would have been, uh, for best graphic album of new material or for best writer artist for the Eisners. Um, so their, their nominees were, uh, long walk to Valhalla, Nanjing, the burning city ruins, Sam Zabel and the Magic Pen, a Dylan Horrocks joint, um, and The Thrilling Adventures of Lovelace and Babbage, which I believe was the winner for the Eisner. Um, computers? I don't think so, but who knows? That, yeah, Ada Lovelace and Charles Babbage. Could be, I suppose. Early computer science people. Yes. Um, maybe I'll get Scott in here to explain to you what a computer is. Yeah, please do. Uh, the Best Writer Artist nominees were Bill Griffith, Nathan Hale, Sidney Padua, uh, Ed Pisker of Hip Hop Family Tree fame. I know you are uh, at least aware of that one. And uh, Noah Van Siver, uh and Bill Griffith won that one. And then the uh, the adjacent categories at uh, the Harveys for Best Graphic Album, Captive of Friendly Cove, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Long Walk to Valhalla, March Book 2, Nanjing the Burning City, The New Deal, and Two Brothers, and March took that one home. And these are all things that you are like familiar with, at least? Uh, most of them, like there's a few titles here that I ha- I've never read, but I have at least like, I've heard of most of these at the very least. Um, all the, all the creators who I'm seeing for like writer artist, I have, I have, I'm aware of at least. Um, and then again, for best cartoonist at uh, the Harvey's, the nominees were Asaf Hanukkah or Hanukkah, uh, Matt Kint, Michael Kupperman, Terry Moore, Rafer Roberts, and Stan Sakai, uh, the God who also was the winner. Usagi Yojimbo, good stuff. Yes. I've heard that about you. <laughs> <laughs> So let's uh, let's break this down here. Like I said, I we probably should have uh, saved this for last since we're going to be sort of summing things up here. But I, I'm making an educated guess, and if I need to uh, change my ways, then I will. You can uh, you can announce it in the first episode of uh, the next. Well, I was thinking I would just uh, record a little bonus thing. Oh wow! And so, Look at you go. And if my if my opinions about Wait, actually, no. We'll we'll do it first, and then I'll sort of leave space for a uh, for a thing. So we are we did what uh, is it eight episodes? Do do we want to do we want to break the zots down in the same way? Oh that we wow! Down? I I didn't, but uh, if you if you did that and want to share, I can give it a quick bit of thought. I mean, I think at the very least, um, like zot what like color zot versus black and white zot. Yeah should sort okay. of be considered as separate works, I would say. Um, but I, I think we should. We should do it in the same way that we categorize them in the episode. So Zot 1 to 10, um, Zot, what is it, 11 to 36. 
Well, in our episode, we oh, did oh, 11 yeah, we to did. 27 and then yeah, 28 and then 20 to 36. Yeah. Um, so I'm just writing stuff down here. Um, understanding Comics is the next one, right? Yep. Superman, Superman Adventures. Adventures. Reinventing. Reinventing Comics, Making Comics, and The Sculptor. Yep. Okay. So why don't you go ahead and give us your list, and then I will uh, come back with mine. Go from the bottom up. From the bottom up. All right. Surprising, probably nobody uh, slotting in uh, uh, in the last slot uh, with a comfortable buffer between it and everything else uh, is going to be reinventing comics. Nothing against um, Scott sharing his ideas and, and doing so excitedly, um, but really more interesting as a time capsule to me than uh, a particular, uh, you know, a work unto itself. Um Next would be for me making comics. It is, it's good. It's definitely good. It's just like everything else on the list, I would say, is special. Making comics is good. Um, next up, the sculptor. After that, the color issues of Zot, which was one to 10. Following that, Superman Adventures. And then at number two is Understanding Comics. And number one, I think also probably to the surprise of no one who's listened to all of them, is Black and White Zot. Right. A mighty fine list, I will say. Um, let me, I'm just sort of finalizing my list here. So I think uh, what I will put things down as, so in, what is it, eighth place, I have Reinventing Comics as well. Again, do we... we I think we're we're a little harsher on it maybe than we might think of it, but I think is it's it's a very interesting read, but maybe not totally successful as like a coherent piece of work. <laughs> like it's sort of a peek into Scott's mind in a lot of ways, right. and like for better or for worse. Um, after that, I'm going to put Superman Adventures, which I I like a lot, but I think you know like it it sort of is what it is. It has certainly like has a lot of hallmarks of Scott's work, but I don't think ever really like brings it home in the same way that his best stuff does. And I, again, like I think other than reinventing, I think all this stuff is like at least quite good. Um, I'm going to slot in making comics here <laughs> again, based totally on my speculation. Um, I think it's, I think what I will say about it last week is that it's, you know, obviously not necessarily something that applies directly to me, but certainly something that is a very valuable resource and something that I learned a lot from at the very least. Um, after that, I have Zot 11 to 27, which I think are, it's, it's sort of my, my least favorite version or execution of Zot, where it's, it's not quite nailing what I love about the first 10 issues. And it's not quite nailing what it becomes in those later issues. Um, obviously, you know, it's still very good stuff, but I think it, it, it sort of tries to serve two masters for me. And I think we get into that on uh, the episode that we talked about it, where you enjoy it a little more than I do. Um, after that is The Sculptor. Again, I liked it a lot, as we talked about. Definitely some problems, but overall, like, the, the, the sequence we talked about, that sort of 10-page sequence and the ending sequence... I both think are really, 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 really good. Um, after that is Zot 1 to 10, which 
sort of we are on record that I like that one a little more than you. I think I like the sort of riffs on the superhero genre and the retro futurist stuff a little more than you maybe. Um, and then same as you, in second place I have Understanding Comics, and then in first place I have the Black and White Zots. I think, you know, certainly I would never impugn someone for have understanding comic having understanding comics first like i would certainly call it his most important work by mm-hmm. a mile but i think both of us both you and i have a same sort of fondness or soft spot for that kind of storytelling and that kind of sentimentality or emotional punch that those issues deliver Yes, like Scott, uh, I think the the narrative uh, storytelling aspect of things, the the fiction of it all, is uh, what appeals to us. And as interesting as his nonfiction stuff is, um, I'm I'm pretty much always going to prefer fiction to nonfiction. So when it's close, it's usually going to go fiction's way. Yeah, I I got to go with my heart, you know. You know. Who's that? I don't know. <laughs> you <laughs> you so. doing that? I guess that's who I sound like. Um so that uh, that, that concludes it. that concludes Scott McCloud. I think uh I'm just gonna go ahead and call this an unqualified success. Even <laughs> even though we didn't get our interview with Scott. I'm still gonna call it a success. I can only agree, I'm sure, and I'm sure the listeners feel the very same. I I think people are going to enjoy this. I'm going to be, I'm going to sell this hard. Um, for those, again, another peek behind the curtain. We'll, by the time, uh, we record our next episode, we will have released our first episode. This has been something that has been brewing for a long time and that the two of us have definitely enjoyed working on. And so we're excited to put it out into the world. And so, you know, I guess you've already been listening for a while if you are listening to this, but, if you have listened, thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed it following along as much as we did. Um, and David, what's uh, you kind of ruined it already, but what's, uh, <laughs> what's coming up in our future? Well, uh, well what's, hap- first, what's happening next week? Next week, uh, as promised, we will be taking a look at the, uh, the issue that took away uh, the Eisner for best single issue from Zot. Oh, oh, oh I forgot uh, about that. The Gumby Summer Fun Special and its sister issue, uh, the Gumby Winter Fun Special. Uh, we'll be spending some time digging into those. They are... Uh, <laughs> a surrealist's delight (laughs) that's how how i'll describe it so um hopefully enjoy those i forgot to mention on that episode they are uh there's like a weird little side tangent that i'll talk about briefly there is a trade paperback that collects uh the two the two gumby fun special seasonal fun specials it was originally published as the art adams like gumby art adams specials um but Art Adams has some beef now with Comico and was like, don't put my name on the cover of that book. So they covered all of them up with labels that call it the Gumby's Spring Fun Special, which what? is a trade paperback collecting the winter and summer fun specials. And there is no Gumby Spring Fun Special. So That's truly yeah. nutty. 
that's just a weird little thing that I forgot to mention on that episode that I thought was bizarre uh, and interesting. So that will be coming up next week. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, but may or may not have cut out, <laughs> we will, after that, be diving directly into Brian K. Vaughn. That's probably not a surprise for anyone also who listened to episode zero. He was our other uh, proposal for the first the first miniseries. So issue one of our uh, Brian K. Vaughn miniseries will be coming out after Gumby. Um, so we can break it down a little bit here. I was just looking at uh, the order and which titles specifically we are going to cover. Here are the ones that I think we must cover. Uh, not not in chronological order, just, just the list. Why the Last Man, Saga, Ex Machina, Paper Girls, Runaways, Swamp Thing, Ultimate X-Men. It's gonna be good. <laughs> those are so. Those are how many is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven titles that I think we we have to cover minimum. Here are some other ones that I think we should and those probably. Well, I are like, are you thinking that so like Paper Girls, like thirty issues? Like, are we gonna? Oh yeah, those are that's like a twofer. Yeah, most of those are multiple episodes. Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, um, here here are some of the ones that I think we should cover. Mystique, which is 13 issues. The Private Eye, which is 10. Um, Doctor Strange, The Oath, which is 5. We might do that as like maybe a little bonus at some point, uh, a different time. And Pride of Baghdad, which I'm having trouble finding right now, but I think is only 3. Okay. So for those those like briefer ones... Do you have any uh, opinions about covering versus not co- Let me let me talk through each of those briefly cuz they're all short enough that hypothetically I don't think they would make the cut. So Mystique is one that I think we could potentially cut um it's it's like an early-ish work of his from like the mid 2000s. Uh it was like somehow sus- she sustained a solo title for 24 issues and a big part of that was the fact that um Brian K. Vaughn wrote like 13 of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, just one of his like lesser known, but one of his few like mainstream in universe superhero books from like the main Marvel 616. So I think that's kind of of interest. The Private Eye is just really good. Um, and also he and the artist Marcus Martin basically like invented a new digital delivery website to uh, publish it and like did a like mildly pioneering pay what you want system with it that I think is really interesting and, and worth talking about in addition to the story being really good and like um, timely in a lot of ways. Dr. Strange, the oath mostly because of like the lasting impact that this story has had on like the Dr. Strange character. It's sort of like a definitive story for him, even though it's only five issues. Um, it's just been really important to the character in a lot of ways and then pride of baghdad um mostly just because it's like one of it was for a long time it was one of his like signature works like after after um it wrapped up and like before he started on saga the three like brian k vaughn books were um were i I guess it before ex machina started it was like runaways why the last man pride of baghdad those were like the three big things he'd worked on Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely like to cover like so. I, I would like to to cover something Marvel or DC. Like I know Swamp Thing, that's vertigo, right? Yeah. 
Um, so I, I think I would like to cover something that's sort of mainstream, so to speak. Yeah, I think I think if we just want one between Doctor Strange and Mystique, we should do Doctor Strange. Okay. Because like, well, I'm just thinking like, so you know, like probably each of those like the what like six or seven that you named as sort of the main ones mm-hmm. almost all of those would be at least two episodes right yeah i think so if not more yeah so like i think like you know at that point once we're looking at like 15 episodes <laughs> just with like the mainline things we want to trim some fat if yeah. i had to pick like just one or two i would say i think the private eye is probably the best of those tertiary books um and i think dr strange would be a fun one just for the sake of doing yeah a a, like 616 marvel story okay let's do it um and so the so what what would be the first episode after gumby so i believe that the first episode after gumby is actually going to be swamp thing Okay, so on the first episode of Swamp Thing in the description, that is going to be one full... Swamp Thing one to ten. E... Oh, yes, and so we will have a full reading list of that. Yeah, hopefully, volume okay. like four or something. Sure, <laughs> whatever you say. Yes, I'm. I'm just digging through his bibliography, trying to see what his like first published uh, published work was. I think yeah, it, it might have been like an old issue of Wolverine or something. It definitely becomes a little more complicated when you get into people like this. Like Scott McCloud, I think, is more of an exception than a rule in terms yeah. of like his work is so clearly sort of delineated into like specific books in that way. Yeah. Without like and not a ton outside of that. Whereas, you know, when we move when we move into people like this, like even Brian K. Vaughn, who hasn't done a ton of work like marvel dc work Mm -hmm. there's still a lot of stuff that we're gonna just have to skip over sadly yeah sorry to uh we stand on guard and the x-men icons series i mean we don't we won't even be able to do an episode on uh lost season three episode 17 catch 22 (laughs) well yeah we can talk about it but that's he we talked earlier uh i think in reinventing about like the pathways into the industry but yeah he's a he was a TV guy originally and still does some TV work. <laughs> not, not that I think that either of these things are real, but under film, under his filmography, the two credits are Untitled Silver Surfer Film, TBA, <laughs> where he is credited as, as writer. And then the other project where he is credited as writer, Untitled Mobile Suit Gundam Film. <laughs> Let's see when those uh, citations are from. Pretty recent. Wow. Like 2019, Brian K. Vaughn to pen Gundam movie for Legendary. Who knows? Could happen. Saga's been on hiatus for like two years, so maybe I mean, he's I'm, looking to fill his schedule. I'm sure he's going, like, I'm sure he wrote a script. I don't know what will become of it after that. But yeah, so that will do it for Scott. Scott, thank you for letting us into your life, other way around. Um, and yeah. I think just a just a great start to the pod. And I think there's more good stuff coming down the pipe. Pike, whatever. Uh, both. Also, why not both? I say. Also, man, how much how much awards talk are you going to be able to drop with oh, BKB? In my opinion, too much. Uh, but we'll, we'll get into it when we get to Spicy. it. Spicy. Okay, 
that will, since we've now <laughs> clearly crossed the three-hour mark, that will do oh it for us. Oh my gosh, so we have. Uh, thank you all for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our Patreon. <laughs> and Don't I let Gail w- Simone put us on blast on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> Give us one subscriber. <laughs> whatever, whatever you do, don't let Gail Simone cancel us. <laughs> That's the outro. (laughs) Yeah. Bye. (laughs) Bye.